Welcome to the podcast. Lovely ball by Werner. Lovely finish by Havertz. The German connection bearing fruit for Chelsea. Two on the night and three and three for Kai Havertz. Here he is with Patrick Davison. Kai, well done. Two goals for you. How important are three points? Is it one for Chelsea? Yeah, I think very important. Uh, I think, yeah, we have to come in the top four. That's our goal for the season, 100%. And I think... This win uh, today is crucial, crucial for us, and um, yeah, now on Wednesday another tough game, but of course we are very happy about the win. You looked very confident with both your finishes. How cool did you feel going through on the goalkeeper? Yeah, to be honest, uh, it felt good to score um, very early the goal, so it gave me a, a little bit of confidence. Uh, confidence, but yeah, of course for me it's always good to score, and um, I'm very happy to help the team with the goals and. Um, I hope uh, I can continue on Wednesday like, like this. Did, it owe, did both goals owe a lot to the quality of your teammates? Great touch and pass from Mason for the first goal. Lovely bit of quality from Timo for the second. Yeah, of course, I said, this before, uh, said this before, uh, that before. We have um, a lot of uh, quality players in our team and for us it's easy you know, uh, to create chances. Um, and. I think uh, that's uh, that's the aim for the strikers to score goals, and when you have like midf- midfielders like this behind your back, it's always good. So, um, of course, I know I've good teammates, and I'm very lucky that they helped me today like this. You said already another big game on Wednesday. How are you finding that schedule at the moment of big game, big game? Every game is tough. Every game is important. Yeah, it's, to be honest, very hard. You know. Uh, you have to concentrate every three days on another game and another competition, and uh, it's hard. You know, it's the end of the season. We almost play, played nine months now already, um, and it's hard. You know, you come home, you have uh, two or three days to regenerate, and on Wednesday you play again. You know, it's good to have now three days um, for, for the for the uh, three days in between the next game. Um, last week I think it was more tough, but of course very hard. But that's the reason why we are uh, professionals and. Uh, we have to be professional like this now. Is it a completely new experience for you, this number of tough games in such a short space of time? Yeah, I, I played, um, you know, in some Europe leagues uh, in the last few years as well, and with Leverkusen, but I think here, you know, you have, I think, two more teams in the league. You have uh, one cup more than, uh, I think, in the last couple of years, the, the quarter or after the group stages in the, in the Champions League was uh, finished for us, then... Europe League, uh, maybe quarter-final. Now you come into the semi-final, you have uh, some more games. It's hard, but I think we are very happy to, to play in these competitions and, uh, yeah, it makes fun. You've certainly given the manager something to think about with your goals this evening. How desperate are you to start that game against Madrid on Wednesday? Yeah, I'm always desperate to start games. Um, you know, um, I play football to play games, um, but I'm, I know, of course, we have... A lot of quality players in the team. Um, sometimes uh, it is like that, um, that that other players play as well. And to be honest, uh, the other players did um, in the last few matches very good. So, you know, I, I keep on going, I train hard, I give my best when I'm on the pitch. And um, 
yeah, I'm always happy to help the team and then we will see you on Wednesday. Okay. Thanks for your time. Well no played. Problem. Well Thank done, you. mate. Very diplomatic answer from Kai Havertz, but do you think that that's something that Tuchel will be looking at seriously for the game against Paris Saint-Germain? Yeah, I, th I think he will. I guess Real Madrid. Madrid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other one, the other semi-final, yeah. Uh, no, I think uh, Thomas Tuchel, I think, used Kai Havertz today in, in a way that, you know, playing the Pulisic who, who likes to, you know, get the ball to feet and drive, but knowing Fulham want to press and be on the front foot, they bypassed that today. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was important that Kai Havertz was playing a little bit, you know, higher in, in, in that more advanced role and then linking off, of course, Mason Mount. But, you know, today I think he, he was fantastic. He didn't get you know, too involved in the build-up, as I mentioned, but his little through balls and his little deft touches and, and, and controls around the box, that timing of that little ball in behind, I think he, you know, deserved his two goals tonight. Yeah, we talked about Chelsea's sort of inability to, to finish their chances. Is he the answer, do you think? Oh, I tell you what, he's uh, another game today, we're very, very impressed with him because his little deft touches and his, his intelligence and knowing when to run and where to run, um, and then when the ball arrives, he saw he's just not flustered. And all the top top players have that; they always seem to have more time in the, on the ball, you know. Uh, and he's still he's still young. Is he 22? Ash is he? Yeah, 22, 23. 22, 23. And he's going to get better and better. And um, I know he's had his hard first season. He's had COVID. He's had injuries, but he shows glimpses in games of absolute top top quality play. Uh, and I think he's going to be a very exciting player for Chelsea. He also mentioned the, the role of his teammates in, in both of his goals. The first one in particular, the touch from, from Mason Mount. Yes, sublime. You know, you know we, we spoke about it. You know, Mason, again, he's so vital for this team. He can make runs in behind. You know, he, he can play to feet. And then this touch to take, take it away from the two Fulham players. And then, you know, that timing of that ball was, was brilliant. You see the spin on this, on this ball as he brings it down. I think it's tremendous, but that's what Mason gives you, that runs in behind, he takes players away, draws players in, is at touch, over his head, not even looking, takes two players out the, out the game and then it's a, it's a brilliant through ball and a great finish. And again, you, we, we talked about Mason Mount at, at half-time, but he is a player who's just, he, he, as good as he was at the start of the season, it feels as though he's improved as it's gone on. Yeah, the, the more and more he's been in, these, in the Chelsea team and the more it seems to be, the more pressure situations he's been in he's really and some players sometimes go backwards when they when they suffer they, they burst on the scene and then they get to this stage where there's a lot of pressure and then they have a bit of a, a dip he's just got better and better and better and I'm so excited about him I really am I think he's an absolute superb player and he's when he when he does things like that I mean that's such a difficult skill yeah. that ball's traveled 60 yards he's come out of the air he's got two big defenders around him but his awareness and his deafness is just on another level. He really is. And he looks, I mean, you know him, Ashley. He, yeah. he looks as though he just takes everything in his stride. He looks unfazed by each new level that he goes to. He, he does. He's, he's, you know, a humble boy, uh, Chelsea fan, you know, living a dream. But within that, you know, he, he wants to work hard. He wants to improve. He wants to get better. He wants to score goals. He wants to run for his team, he, you know. So he shows that enthusiasm day in, day out. And, and I think that's what making him, you know, uh, for me, one of the top players in, in world football right now. Uh, definitely in the Premier League and, of course, vital for, for Chelsea. Yeah, do you think he's almost the most important player for, for Thomas Tuchel? Yes, it, yeah. It, it, you know, he's pivotal in you know, the way they want to press, the way they want to get after the ball, the way 
you know, he can he can keep the ball for his team. He changes, you know, the speed of attacks. He, he's understanding to get in between lines and be able to turn and then drive. You know, he's got the quality of the the final ball. Yeah, he's he's vital for for this Chelsea team. He is hugely important for them. He's one of those players where young kids will look at look at him and what what he does, and they'll go and practice what he does in the games. They'll be practicing over the park. I'm going to do what Mason mounted. He's one of those players. And he's, he's still very young and it's all in front of him. But um, every, everything I hear about him, every time I see him play and everything I hear about him, I think this, you know, he, he's gonna have, he could go on and get 100 caps for England. He really could. The way he's progressing, absolutely superb. And as much as he was the creator for the first goal, we talked about Timo Werner maybe struggling to convert his opportunities, but this is an indication of why he's important to, yeah. to Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. Absolutely, absolutely. Any, any top team, they've got players that are prepared to run in behind. And Chelsea have got them. Um, and especially Timo Werner, even when he's not scoring. This is great. Kai Havertz again. That pass through there is... If you see Lionel Messi make a pass like that, we'd make such a big deal out of it because it's such a difficult skill to do first and foremost. But again, that first touch is absolutely electric. It really is. And he just continues his run into the box. It's a super pass because it's got to be perfect. If, he, if it's any heavier, it goes through to the keeper. If it's softer, the defender cuts it out. So that weight of pass from Timo Werner has got to be spot on, and it was. And that's just... All game, it was uh, Kai Havertz, it was Timo Werner, Mason Mount. Zayak, before he went off in the first half, was in, into a lot as well. But I, I'm quite excited about this Chelsea team. I think they're getting better and better. Yeah, we knew that they had all those talented attacking players, but they really seem to be gelling at the business end of the season. As for Fulham, they have found themselves in an extremely difficult position at the bottom of the table. We'll get reaction to that and hopefully hear from Scott Parker next. After defeat this evening, Fulham are running out of games to save their season. Let's hear from Scott Parker with Patrick Davison. Well, Scott, we can get to the consequences in a minute because it's obviously a really damaging one. But in terms of the performance, the effort, endeavour, the mindset you wanted, did you get all that? I got all that and I got the quality as well, to be fair, Patrick. Of course, there's... Um, um, We've not got a positive result, but in terms of what you're saying there, in terms of an attitude and a desire, I got all of that, and I got a performance as well. Coming to a place here, and you see in the week against Real Madrid, what this team are capable of in terms of what they're about, pride themselves on really the ball, and we managed to put our stamp on it and, and limited that really. Of course, um, on, on, on the overall, how I look at it, at, at times that quality come through in two goals, soppy from us. But nothing but proud of my team. Really, honestly, nothing but proud of my team. I thought we've come to a place here, put our stamp on it. The last few weeks I've been disappointed with the way we've played. I thought at times we've not really looked a real threat and certainly gone away from probably what we're about, really. Today we had every bit of that. And, um, of course, I understand the consequences and I understand maybe your next question to me. Um, but as always, you take, like I said at the top, you take every game as it is. And first and foremost, you need a performance. Um, I got that. I, I, for sure, I got that. Um, but like a lot of times this year... Um, we've fallen short in some moments. And again today, at certain moments, we just fell a little bit short. It was one of those moments, the first goal, you'd started the game yeah. really well, and it's a long, simple, straight ball, yeah. albeit a lovely bit of quality from Mount to, to kill it. Yeah, it was, um, it was a poor first goal, a long ball, really, 
50, 60 yards will stun us with no real pressure. Decided to go at them today, put pressure on them, didn't want to come here and really sit off it and, and have a long afternoon suffering. Um, but yeah, it's fair to say the first goal was a poor one. In saying that, we have had good chances. One at the second half, uh, one at the first half, I remember. Keepers pulled off a very good save. My team were front foot today. My team were aggressive, showed quality, um, but like I said, just, just fell short at certain moments. What are you thinking as the game's going on, particularly with your changes? Sort of wondered with his goal record whether you might turn to Mitrovic earlier, but like you say, if the game's going well in terms of performance as you see it, you want to probably not change too much too quickly. I didn't want to change too much too quickly. I didn't, you know, the, the, the goals come at a, a real bad time for us. The second one certainly come at a real bad time. And look at a team ever today, well, I, I always felt we was in the game. I thought we, we had energy. I thought we had a real, a, a, a real bravery about us in the way we played. Um, and look, there's always people sitting from afar looking in. This is very easy to, 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 to look at and think, could do this, could do that. Um, what we did today was nothing short of, um, I was very pleased with. Where does it leave you, Scott? I mean, obviously the gap Four is... Wins. Four wins. Four wins, Patrick. Yeah, it can be done. Perform like that against a team that we've come here today, which are a very, very good side. This team are oh, Real Madrid at the week. I think they got one shot off on goal against this team. I don't know exactly the shot count today. I'm not sure in terms of possession as well. This is, an, this is a very good side, a really good side with top quality. Perform like that, I have, I, I, yeah, for sure I do. I, I, I believe, well, that's, that's what we've got to do. We have to win four games. So can we go and win four games? We'll soon find out. You'll ask the question on Monday night after we play Burnley and we'll, we'll, we'll know the answer. Um, what I do know is if we, can, if we can perform and keep the level of performance like we did today, we have a chance of beating Burnley. We have a chance of beating Southampton. We have a chance of beating Man United and then Newcastle. And that's, that's the task ahead. It's a difficult one. Of course it is. Um, but it's one with, with the, right, the right way about us. I think we could do I have to tell you, Fulham have never won four Premier League no. games in no, a row. No. Does that make you sag your shoulders or actually does it no. motivate you more? No, it doesn't make me sag my shoulders at all. Um, this is the challenge of the Premier League for a team like us. And um, I, I, I understand exactly the, the numbers. I understand where everyone may see it. But I think anyone watching that game today who, who, who understands what this game was will we, 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 we'll have nothing but, or, or see a team there, what was dynamic, see a team there that was trying to win the game. And um, I, I honestly believe that we can win four games. I also know we have to win four games. And um, that's our aim. What was better this evening? You talked about the last few weeks, you've been a little bit disappointed, maybe yeah. since the Liverpool game, when you were really right in it. Yeah. What, what's dipped between that game and this? I don't know. I don't know whether it's the, the whole pressure of what, what this has brought or where we are. Um, but certainly, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm being honest when I say that. I think the last three or four games, we've, we've lacked that real spark, really, and certainly locked our, uh, lost our identity. Um, and our, our identity is the way we play today. That's the only way we're going to win football matches. You turn the game end to end. We need to try and control the game. Um, with the ball, we also need to, to understand that it's not just a possession game, we need to attack and I thought we had that balance quite well considering the opposition we was up against. Um, I thought we had energy today, I thought we was aggressive, won a lot of duels and tried to take the game to, to a very good side and that needs to be the mantra now until, until the end of the season. It's some escape, wouldn't it? It certainly would be, yeah. We've seen it before, haven't we? We've seen it before and while everyone I know no doubt will be, um, will be laughing at their screens listening to me talk and think um, I'm living in cuckoo land, I get that, and may, maybe I am, but 
until until that curtain comes down, let's see let's let's see from there. Right. Cheers, Patrick. Cheers, Thank you, mate. And the curtain down uh, isn't down just yet for Scott Parker and for Fulham. They are nine points from safety and they have 12 points left to play for. They need, essentially, to win their last four Premier League games of the season. They're against Burnley, Southampton, Manchester United and Newcastle. Um, and that's best-case scenario for them. It, it, does it help, Chris? I mean, as, as Pat pointed out to Scott Parker, they've never won four Premier League games in a row ever. But does it help that two of those games are against Burnley and Newcastle, even if it's a psychological victory as much as an actual one? Well, it's definitely, yeah, I think because, you know, Newcastle are down there as well. Um, but I think New what, there's one word that's missing with Fulham and Newcastle have it, and so of Burnley, it's momentum. And Fulham have lost momentum. They've had opportunities. Um, in the last three months, they've had opportunities where they could close that gap and they didn't do it. Uh, and easy on the eye and you know people say good things and they play some good football but they're not they don't have that one thing Chelsea had today they play good football and they're ruthless we saw some nice passing from Fulham and in the first 45 minutes two or three good chances the second 45 minutes we saw some nice football but not enough potency in that final third and it was Chelsea at the other end I was looking at Fulham they had about 25 passes and went nowhere Chelsea nicked it back. Timo Werner ran 60 yards and got a free kick on the edge of the box for a goal-scoring opportunity. And unfortunately, that's the difference. And the Premier League's the most unforgiving league in, in the world. It's the best league and the most unforgiving. And if you're not ruthless, um, you can play as nice as you like, really. If you're not ruthless and you can't see things out, um, then you're not going to get points in the Premier League. And I think Newcastle and Burnley, um, they're going to win one of the remaining games, I think. And I think that's going to push it then beyond Fulham, unfortunately, uh, who just haven't got enough. You said that they, they lack sort of ruthlessness, um, Fulham. They didn't have a shot on target in the, the second half of this game. It's a, it's a difficult quality to instill in a yeah. side. If it's a, if it's a coaching issue or if it's a tactical issue, it's probably more straightforward to fix than it is in, in terms of a mentality or an attitude. Yeah, no, I, I think, as Scott mentioned, you know, they showed a good attitude, that they showed intensity and, you know, the way they want to press and, and get after the ball. But I just felt at times that, that enthusiasm that, you know, the players had, it, it worked into Chelsea's hands. I think Chelsea let them come on to them, you know, and waited just for the counter-attack. They, they probably knew that in and around uh, Fulham's box, they, for me, they don't defend it well enough. They don't stay with runners well enough. And uh, Scott mentioned two straight balls have beat them today, uh, which, you know, at this level can't happen. Uh, but have they got enough to, to get out of it? I don't think so, but I hope so. I, I loved hearing Scotty speak and showing that defiance. And as a player, that's what you want. Well, there was defiance from Scott Parker, but it is a really difficult task ahead for Fulham between now and the end of the season. For Chelsea, on the other hand, they've put themselves well in contention for Champions League places. They've got a Champions League semi-final coming up and an FA Cup final. After a 2-0 win, Chelsea comfortably in fourth place in the Premier League table and potentially closing in on third. Here's Thomas Tuchel with Patrick Davison. Thomas, reflections on the victory, how important a win was it? Very, very important. I'm very proud because in between two big games, semi-finals, it's so hard to be 
full on and uh, we knew that uh, Fulham gives everybody a hard time. You, you, you don't find matches where, where the opponents play the brilliant football because they, they make you underperform and they make you work hard and they make you suffer and you cannot get confused by the table because they're in the, in the bottom of the table. Absolutely not. That's why I have uh, um, highest respect for, for what we did today. It was tough for us uh, physical-wise, and, and, uh, but we hang in the game. We, we created some chances. We could have, we could have decided the match earlier, early on. But uh, yeah, it was a tough one, but a very, very important win. And now is uh, the, best, the best moment also to the best situation to arrive for, mon- uh, for, for, for Wednesday. Focus was the big word for you yes. beforehand. Was it as you wanted it? Yes, it was absolutely like this. We were spot on. This uh, was what we demanded from ourselves. And it was the moment to show the pride also to, that, that we are capable of doing it in, in between two big games. Because this was also a big win for us in the big game. It was also important to keep the advantage. We worked so hard against against West Ham and all the other matches to be in this situation. And I'm very happy that, that we did it. There was uh, absolutely no lack of concentration. Like I said, we had some, some troubles um, uh, during a match, which has everybody who plays against uh, Fulham side who are like preparing this game for, for a whole week. It's absolutely normal. But we had no lack of concentration, and that was the key point. What did you make of Kai Havertz's performance this evening? Not just his performance, his goals, and yeah. has he given you some thinking to do for the Madrid second leg? Yeah, for sure. He, he, this is what we want. If somebody gets his chance, you have to make your point. You have to be there. He scored two decisive goals for us, had another one, I think, from, from offside and, and some other half chances. So he was involved together with Timo. Very good performance from our two strikers, and that's the way it should be. And Billy Gilmore, there was one point, I mean, he hasn't had a chance in the Premier League under you. There was one point in the second half where you looked quite animated trying to shout onto the pitch to him. Uh, no, I don't think not to Billy. Was <laughs> was happy with him, and uh, well, you know he does not need to convince me in this game. He convinced me before. That's why he plays the game. So now it's on the on the pitch. It's not to convince me. It's on the pitch. It's to do your job and help everybody out because it's number six position. You see that it's not easy for him, uh, but uh, we did not expect it to be easy for him. You, you, you played the first minutes, like you said, in Premier League and did very, very well. He has a high volume. He can give a high work rate. He has uh, the quality to play for us, and, and um, I'm happy that he did good. Just last one on the fitness of various players, obviously without Rudiger and uh, Kovacic. Yeah. Kovacic for a few weeks, but there's a few players, you said beforehand, in the red zone. Mason yeah. went off with a bang yeah. to his back, so... Who's going to so be fitting hope, well for no, the big one? I, I'm, I, I hope really that Mason is not the big thing and he, we take him off now, so hopefully he's, he can fully recover till Real Madrid. I think <clears throat> Tony can play with a mask and everybody else who was on the bench will be, will be totally fit for, for Wednesday, so hopefully we have the whole squad with uh, <coughs> Matteo. will be maybe too close, but we still have hopes. Well done. Thanks. Cheers. Just put this, this result into context. So they're, they're up against a side who are in the relegation places, but it comes between two semi-finals of the, the Champions League against Real Madrid and having made five changes to his starting lineup. So was this impressive in terms of focus, as, as he referenced there, as much as anything else? Yeah, I think on the eye, I don't think Chelsea played you know, well. They had a good game plan. Uh, but you know, getting, getting squeezed into the, you know, after the Madrid game, 
the first leg and knowing you've got on Wednesday another big game, he had opportunity to rotate. Again, not disrespecting Fulham because he knew it would be a tough game, but you have to rest these, these top players. Uh, and then, you know, you're looking forward to the FA Cup final and then the last two games of the season. So it's a busy period for them, but it's the business end is what players look, look forward to uh, and, and enjoy and hopefully you see them thrive. Yeah, as much as the, the season has been congested up to this point, this is where you want to be busy because it means you're involved. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't mind having four games left of the season, knowing I could be in uh, you know, the top four, an FA Cup uh, final, and hopefully you know, a second leg against a great team, Real Madrid, to go to a final with the Champions League is, is brilliant. It's interesting, and I think this will be particularly pertinent for you, Chris, that this Chelsea side is, and the success that they're having under Tuchel is built on that solid defence. It was As much as there were two goals, it was another clean sheet for them as well. No, absolutely. I think the stats, you know, they're, they're incredible, really, since he's, since he's come in. Look at that. First, 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 first <laughs> on, uh, on all those points, which is very, very impressive. It really is. And, you know, the shape that he's playing with the three defenders in the box midfield, which I really like that formation. Um, but then, you, no matter what formation you play, it's all about the players and it's all about how well they take the game plan onto the pitch, how well they deliver the, the manager's message. And at the moment, these Chelsea players are, you know, I think there's only one game when they lost to West Brom, they had a man sent off, it was a little slip. And West Brom were excellent on the day. Other than that, Chelsea have been absolutely first class. And, um, you know, they, you would, at this stage, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bet against them going to the final. Certainly not going to bet, bet against them getting in the top four because... Uh, they're very much the informed team. Yeah, it's very much in their, in their hands at the moment and certainly even getting into to third place in their hands at the moment. Um, in terms of their attacking performances, we, we can see where the, <laughs> where the issue is and it's borne out by the, by the stats as well. They're having all the shots and creating all the chances. They just can't quite get that sharpness in front of goal. Yeah, you know, again, we're always going to look back and, and say, you know, Werner should take the chances. But again... It, Chris will know more than me, but being a manager and a coach, as long as you're getting the opportunities, I, I would say, you know, as long as you're making the, the chance and opportunities, yet yeah, mm. you hope that your striker that you paid £40 million for will come good. But what we speak about is, is the other bits of, of, of his game that really, really intrigues me and, and you know, very important for the Chelsea team. And, and hopefully... Coming into the business end, we'll start to get the results of maybe Werner scoring a couple more goals, uh, Mason getting on the, on the score sheet a little bit more as well. Let's take a look at, at the table then. As far as Chelsea are concerned, it's looking extremely bright. They are clear in fourth place now, six points between them and West Ham, even though Chelsea have played a game more. But they've played the same number of games as Leicester and they're only two points behind them with Leicester still to play as well in terms of the, their, their remaining, remaining fixtures. You, you wouldn't bet against Chelsea. They're finishing third, actually. Um, I was speaking with Ash off camera there. We don't want Leicester to do what they did last year. It'd be a killer for them because they've had such a great season. But this Chelsea team, those are the games you want to be... If you're at Chelsea, those are the games you want to be involved in. Business end of the season, huge games, playing for everything. And that's a, that's a successful season for Chelsea because they can win a couple of cup, cup competitions. They can finish, in, they can finish third. That's a good season for Chelsea. It, it's, it's a good season for Chelsea already. Um, in terms of the, the improvement that's made and the potential that they've got between now and the end of the season, when Frank Lampard took, when they took over, sorry, when Tuchel took over Frank Lampard, there were six points off fourth place. And I don't think anybody would have bet necessarily on them 
getting to this stage of the, the Champions League, maybe the, the FA Cup. So does it sort of vindicate the decision? Is, is there enough of an improvement to say this wouldn't have happened under the previous manager? It's very difficult because six points off, off fourth position, uh, games that, you know, could Frank have won them, of, of course. Uh, but, but Thomas has definitely come in and, and, and steadied the ship. I think you look at errors leading to goal-scoring opportunities, I think is, you know, the errors are been kind of put out of, of focus. I, I think, you know, they're still playing that from the back, but defensively, they're stronger. They're, they're attacking the box and, and defending it better. That willingness to really get back and track runners, I think, is improved. So, yeah, right now, of, of course, is looking, looking good. So, top four qualification. They're one all against Real Madrid going to the second leg of the Champions League semi-final where potentially they could face Manchester City yeah. who are in pole position against PSG and an FA Cup final coming up against Leicester. This could be an excellent season for Chelsea. Could. Looking forward it to could. the end of it. Yeah, you know, you just hope that the players can keep this momentum and keep this focus and, you know, really concentrate and hopefully, you know, no injuries in, in the next couple of weeks and really fight for a couple of trophies again. Ashley, Chris, thank you very much for your company this evening. Let's take a look at what's coming up for you on Sky Sports. On Sunday, there's an old firm game. Rangers take on Celtic from 11 o'clock on Sky Sports Football. As part of Super Sunday, it starts with Newcastle against Arsenal. Fulham, of course, will be watching that one anxiously. Then it's Manchester United against Liverpool. City could win the title if Liverpool win that one. Spurs against Sheffield United. Monday night football is West Brom against Wolves. And then Burnley against West Ham. But this evening, Fulham's job got a lot harder while Chelsea put themselves in pole position for Champions League qualification. Sky Sports Premier League. Feel it all. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I am your host, Anne Gripper, and we are back in glorious purple Technicolor today because we are celebrating the 10th wedding anniversary of William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, as well as catching up on the Royal News and looking at some other bits and pieces as well. And I am joined once again by my good friend, Daily Mirror Royal Editor Russell Myers. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. We've had some adventures since we saw each other last. Like, I've been to Cornwall. I've seen the sea. I mean, there were crazy people swimming it in swimming in it in their swimsuits in April. I mean, I was in Cornwall. It is not warm down there. I mean, fair play to them. I've been to a couple of pubs. That's exciting. And do you know where else I've been? I have been into the office to collect all of my junk. So I've got the famous maps to colour in and the colouring pencils. Oh, so yeah. The return, they will be back on the Instagram to hear from our listeners around the world and colour in the maps. So I'll have to check where we are up to. So we, we coloured in the whole of America. That got completed. We got most of the way through Canada. And then it's a debate of whether it's Europe or, um, or just the whole world that we go at next or i need to get an australian let's go big map as well. let's, let's go, go big. big go big or go home um and also it was a bit sad because i went and looked at our little podcast studio and it was all locked up the little red and black squares on the walls and it's that floor's going so we'll have well, i went i went in today 
So I've, I've literally just come back from the office. It was like, I mean, it's just crazy. It's like a ghost town. First time I've been there since February the 20th. Um, last year, not even yeah, this year, yeah, last yeah, yeah, year. No, no, so it's, crazy, it's uh, yeah. So, anyway. well, little, well, we've done very well. Good work. We've done a good job. And producer Dan has done an even better job. Yes. We kept, we've kept it on the road. Keeping the show on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me laugh every time, and it's always a surprise when it turns up. So, um, and you've had a nice little break as well, so that is good. I did. I had some. I had some time off. I had. I had some time off uh, clearing the shed, going to the dump. You know, all the, it's, it's non-stop glamour in, in my life at the moment. So glamorous, very, very glamorous. Well, yeah. here we are back. It's a good day to come back because. There are nice pictures, nice video, happy news. It's all quite warm and wholesome and lovely. So um, we had the pictures, the portraits released under embargo overnight of William and Kate, taken by Chris Floyd, um, a photographer. So he does like Britpop. And he does. Well, I mean, I, I'm not even up on photography or fashion. I kind of knew who Chris Floyd was because... That sort of a throwback to my youth. He's, he's like Britpop, um, legendary photographer, very, very well renowned in certain circles. I don't know if many people would know him outside those sort of um, pop, pop fashion circles, but great shots. I mean, hand, hand, hat off to him. They're, they're superb, aren't they? Yeah, they're great. And I, I was thinking, you know, I mean, Britpop is William and Kate's teenage era really isn't it i would say that you and me and william and kate yep. were pretty much sort of about the same age and um and grew up yeah. with all of that so those are glorious pictures and in fact we i also talked about them this morning with our friend ian vogler because we caught up on the daily mirrors facebook live um and we'll play in some of that audio a bit later on so we'll be able to explore about those photos a little bit more um, with Ian and also we get to hear from Zoe who has been talking to someone from the Scouts about what Kate has been up to working with them and her sort of time and um, her yeah her work and we've talked quite a lot about Kate's work because she does very good things so it'll be interesting to hear from someone who has been working closely with her but as quite often happens we then get a nice little follow-up thing from the Cambridge you get you know you get the initial thing here we go here's our here's our nice happy thing to share with you to celebrate the special day but then they keep something in reserve to say thank you for all our lovely messages in response to the original thing and this time it wasn't just like another picture i mean that would be a bit samey samey this time it was a whole little video it was like some kind of you know sort of very wholesome up and down the you know, north it's, it's, it's like a life insurance video I think it's great. It is just I can't have expected like a voiceover talking about, you know, if you want to protect your family in the future, <laughs> this is where you need to take out this product. I mean it's I, I, I love it. It's great. Um, oh, it's just like very nice setting on the beaches in Norfolk, which you've uh you've never had the pleasure of going. Uh, it's a God's country up there. It's absolutely glorious. Um, and they all seem to be having a very jolly time. They do. Laughing and joking. Nice I hat. You spotted the hat with Kate. Yeah, I spotted, I spotted the hat because there's various bits that you see. Like a ranger's hat. Glimpse as you go through. And um, I think, I don't think it's, um, I don't I don't get family interest. Maybe like shampoo. I mean, Prince William aside, there's a lot of glossy hair going on in that um, 
in that sort of video and sort of autumnal tones. I mean, Kate's <laughs> hair always looks great. And her, I mean, her hair in the, the uh, photos Chris Floyd took looks amazing, like proper, proper glam. But she looks lovely in these pictures as well. And the sort of. Or maybe like a British outerwear. I mean, there's sort they're wearing the outerwear. He's barber. got sort of like the barber jacket. There's the Land Rover Defender in the background. She's got the woolly jumper on. Thought, looking very glam. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was really interesting. There's lots of really nice moments. So I think um, I'm very jealous of their amazing, the children's amazing seesaw that not only looks like it goes up and down, but it goes round and round as well. That looks brilliant. And it's Charlotte and and Louis playing on that. I did find it interesting that Louis and George look so much alike, and you're sort of glimpsing them, and it's sometimes trying to work out which one is. Which and yeah, well, I'm, so, I'm glad you said that because I was, and I thought, oh, it's just me being silly, but like Louis has just grown up so much. Like, I know we saw the oh, we, we were talking about those the pictures of him going to nursery and turning three last week, which were lovely. Looked, I thought he looked really different in the birthday picture. Like his hair looked much darker. He looked a lot less like George. I thought he looked really like Kate in that you know lovely picture well, instead of that, riding the bicycle. Do you know what? There's there's at least sort of what six, seven months difference between these. Where are we now? End of April. So told that these that video was shot in the autumn. And the eagle eyes amongst us spotted that the um, the kids, well, they're all wearing the same outfits as featured in the Christmas card photographs. So, yeah, it was, so when's autumn? September? October? September, October, so, November. Maybe October half term. Well, yeah. then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or even yeah. later. So, Around I mean, there's, you know, there's let's say there's at least six, seven months between those photographs. I mean, gosh, he's changed, in quite, changed quite a lot, hasn't yeah. he? Because he's, he's growing up. His hair's totally changed. It looks a lot less, a lot less like George. But when I was watching it, I thought actually the difference. If he's giggling, it's probably Louis because he seemed to be really enjoying himself and be a lot more sort of you know young, younger and playful and animated. And there's a few bits where George, you know, George looks a little bit like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. <laughs> and sort of looks sort of looking out to sea and you know looking at sort of the what's what's going on. Very pensive. Um, very bit pensive. I mean, it's an amazing tree that they um, look like they're having a go at climbing out. It's very sort of outdoorsy. There was a glimpse of a dog in it, which I'm guessing if it was six months ago, that was probably Lupo. It, it is Lupo, yeah. Yeah, so, <clears throat> definitely. Because, uh, well, just backed up by the fact that that's the dog in the uh, Christmas card photo. Yeah. Did they have the dog in the Christmas card photo? I can't I'm imagining that. I think I'm imagining it. Well, I think I'm, I've been trying to remember, and then I mean, Google's not very helpful if you put in like William Tree and Attenborough. But I feel like William talked to David Attenborough at some stage about an ama- some amazing tree on the Sandringham Estate or something. They but love I a may, tree, the Royals. I they? Love have, a, they love well, a they tree. They plant lots of them, don't they? But I mm. may have hallucinated that, so I do apologise if I've just started making things up. So, but anyway, either way, it is a glorious and magnificent tree to be climbing up. Um, Marshmallow. Lup- Lupo's too. not in the Christmas card photo, but. He did I've imagined that, but it is Lupo. It's got to be Lupo. Yeah. Um, marshmallow toasting. That looks very um, like a Pretty proper cool. outfit going on there. I mean, we've seen Kate doing that with the scouts and things as well. Um, the other thing that I spotted, I mean, we're all big fans of Princess Charlotte. I think it's fair to say her birthday coming up this weekend as well. So, oh, fingers crossed. Maybe more pictures. Come on. The just been spoilt. But she was running around, you know, she's got a little sweater on, but her her shirt tails were peeking out at the bottom of it. She was firmly shirt tucked out, whereas George and, George and Louis were, you know, their shirts were neatly under their jumpers all of the time. So 
another reason that I love Princess Charlotte a little bit more today. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's very, very nice. 10th wedding anniversary. So do we... Are we likely to find out or hear anything about what they got each other? I mean, tin, I think, was it you that suggested that they should get each other a tin of beans? Or was that our friend from Bradbury when she was messing around? <laughs> Maybe it was Sarah, yeah. Tin of beans is a good one. Well, you'll have to remember um, that for in a few years' time. Myers, I'm sure she'll be grateful. <laughs> if she hasn't run off by then. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's tin, isn't it? I mean, well, it's not very glamorous. Tin. Maybe you could get her like um, Aidan Turner from Poldark, who is a tin oh, she'd like him. Who's, she, no, who's the chap in, what's the new one? Bridgerton. Broad, Bridgerton. Not Broadchurch. That's a no, no, no. What's, what's Broadchurch? Is that about Broadchurch a murder? Broadchurch is with Olivia Colman and David Tennant. As a oh, no, Brid- Bridgerton like in our house all day long. Oh, dear. Um, but yeah, I think tin is, a, tin is a tricky one. Maybe like, I don't know. A bit of... Tin of beans it is. Done. <laughs> Tinner's fan. <laughs> I don't know why we got into it. No, we're not. I don't think we're. I mean, unless. Well, I can't shed any light on it. I was just told, you know, private, private time with the family. And this, I mean, I, I think the. Uh, much like they'll be doing in this video, larking around, they seem very, very happy. Bit of as a family. Well, I think also it's, you know, it's interesting that they've they've shown sort of both sides of their family life. I guess you had the portrait, which was the two of them romantic or cuddly, kind of throw back a bit to their sort of engagement photo shoot somehow with the sort of big big squeeze going on. And then you've also got actually this video is kind of this is what they've been doing the last ten years. They've got three they've got three children, and um, and their life has has changed that it's kind of all all moved on a lot. So I think it's interesting that um it it um it shared that. And it was quite nice to have actual sort of formal portraits and sort mm. of formal things because we get a lot of pictures taken by the Duchess of Cambridge, which are really lovely, but it was quite it's quite interesting to have a sort of formally released picture of of them type whilst of while still like having like the playful the playful element i like that's what i liked about them they're not like one of those pictures you see of the european royals or just sort of standing there and yeah, yeah. someone some taking your picture they, like i mean they're just photos. that's why i mean that's why that that's the beauty of having you know someone like chris floyd taking the photographs or like this video taken today um Will War, who says, oh. the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge are very happy 10th wedding anniversary, a true privilege to capture precious moments with the Duke and Duchess at home with their children. Yeah, lovely. Very so, nice. Shout um, out to the peeps who spotted the ghost dress worn yes. in tour of Pakistan as well. Yes, because it, was, it wasn't sort of a, a main event Pakistan visit thing either. I think it was like a sort of only really seen on Instagram a little mm. bit rather than informal pictures. So, you know, the eagle-eyed people, I mean, that's us take so. it. Lockdown has prevented a lot of royal fashion spotting. So that is that is returning. And, you know, the royals are are heading back to work. The Queen has um, sort of completed her, her period of mourning and has she's been, I mean, although she was obviously still sort of taking formal calls and things during that period, but she's now sort of back to the more... Um, I don't know, I guess, outward-looking rather than duty. Back to the day job, I think. I mean, you know, it almost seemed like it didn't stop because there were um, 
obviously a couple of <clears throat> jobs that um, c- came about. That Kate and William were at the Air Cadets because uh, of the Duke of Edinburgh's long association. I think he gave it up in 2015, and it went. To, he was the, pa- the royal patron, and then uh, it went to Kate, and so they thought, thought it was sort of certainly appropriate. Uh, you had Princess Royal, literally just days after he he had died, as um, going to the Isle of Wight to visit the uh, the yacht club there, which which again, keen sailor, very um, lots of ties within within there. So she had been given special dispensations to to do that engagement as well, and of course the Queen had been. Uh, holding sort of a mini reception, leaving due for the outgoing Lord Chamberlain, Earl Peel, and then welcoming the next day his successor, uh, Lord Andrew Parker, into the role, former boss of MI5. So it's been pretty busy, but certainly this week, a couple of days ago, that the Queen was back to work and taking on her first engagement since Philip's funeral. She um, There was two audiences, which I'm sure lots of people have seen there, the Windsor UK's, oh, nearly said Zoom, vi- video call. Um, <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw a big banner on one of the other websites the other day. Queen does Zoom call. I thought, oh, God. They'll be, getting, they'll be getting a letter, yeah. Um, two virtual audiences from Windsor Castle with Her Excellency, uh, Excellency Mrs. Avita Burmestri, hope I pronounced that right, from Latvia, and Her Excellency Mrs. Safra Afui Amani of Cote d'Ivoire, um, and so this was the sort of first job since Prince Philip's funeral. And again, today, she has been doing some more audiences. So certainly there is cause for us to think that um, we're getting back to a bit of normality with the royals. Um, both in terms of being able to get out and about and um, sort of picking up the reins again after taking... The quiet yeah. time on the loss of Prince Philip. And although the Queen, so this is um this was again spotted by Eagle Eye people. So it's believed that the brooch that she wore was one that formed part of a tiara that she was given for her for her wedding. Because you get I mean you get a lot of presents when you're a, a royal nice. being having getting married. Um and you know, all of these tiaras that just come apart. It's so clever and multi-purpose. You mentioning Princess Anne going to the Isle of Wight has remembered has reminded me about a brilliant story that I heard. I think it was in one of the diary columns. And I think it's one of those ones that is thought to be true, but maybe apocryphal. So Prince Philip always used to like to go down to Cow's Week and sort of the big sailing regatta and things, apparently. Yes. And it was a keen sailor. And, you know, anyway, so there's some sailor out sailing around the Isle of Wight. I don't know whether it's around Cow's Week or just, just in general. Anyway, so he's sailing. And there's a bit of you know, bit of a debate about who should give way on, you know, there's all kinds of complicated rules, which I can never understand. Like motor has to give way to sail, but then if you're sailing and the other person's sailing, it depends which way the wind's going and I don't know which kind of attack you're on anyway. So there was a bit of disagreement over the radio about who should be giving way. So it's like, you know, who, you know, you should give way, please. You know, why should I give way? You know, just, please give way. Well, no, give way. What do you think you are? Do you own the, Do you own this bit of the sea? Yeah. Like, well, you can, I mean, you can guess what's coming next. Well, I don't, but my wife. My wife. <laughs> which you know, I I just think it's uh, you can totally imagine it happening. It's like uh, Faulty Towers stroke Monty Python yeah. sketch, isn't it? It's just brilliant. Too good not to share, even if apocryphal. So anyway, um, so there's that and. Also, William and Kate chasing sheep around. 
I mean, from the bizarre, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I love these videos as well. William chasing little lamb round, and then Kate, and then driving around in a tractor. That was quite a lovely um, engagement, actually, because they were in County Durham visiting a farm of the fifth-generation fifth farm, obviously struggling throughout the pandemic, showing their support, being a bit more, um, you know, for the for sort of rural communities, but also visiting a youth centre that was. What was it called Cheesy Chips or something? I'll find it in a minute. It's uh, it was it's called Cheesy something. I think um, they went to this youth centre that benefited quite substantially from donations that were made in lieu of gifts at their wedding. Um, so I've got to find this thing now called Cheesy something. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I thought they could just round it up. They're sort of still doing a bit more of the coronavirus work and about rural communities that have been cut off and it's so important to, you know, we get out and support and celebrate our rural communities as we're all coming back in together. And, um, and certainly it's very important that these, the youth clubs, because there's a lot of kids that have been locked up for a long time through, uh, through the, through the various lockdowns in the UK that will, um, that will need sort of reintegrating to their mates. So I always think about this, that all the kids, I think we'll see a lot of, um, visits to maybe schools or youth clubs mm. by the roles because there's a lot more attention that kids need. You know, they've had they've had a really tough time of it. However hard time you think we've had it, they've had it really tough, the little ones. So um, I think we're going to see a bit more royal action on the horizon at schools and youth clubs and the like. That was a nice tweet from atwise underscore Chapman, who are the um, farmers who who William and Kate went to visit. It's a fabulous day hosting their Royal Highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge for a tour of our farm and they chat about the opportunities in being a mixed farm, such a warm and well-informed couple. Absolute honour to host them. So that's a very nice like, thank you message to them for coming along. Um, so I think it's time to think about, um, well, partly partly going back in time um as we had we'll hear shortly from the scouts and sorry so i'm just it's called cheesy waffles project cheesy waffle i mean i was I gonna think, bug me that was gonna bug I, me i think we need to go there <laughs> cheesy waffles. god i'm hungry now too anyway oh i was just um i was also wanted to give a shout out like the there's various places that have been organizing sort of charity anniversary fundraiser type situation so i know that the baby bank is one of the ones that has um has people have been sort of the twitter sphere has been activating itself and encouraging people to i think um the baby bank's got a, a wish list on amazon so people have been going on there and buying them stuff and, and sending it over so i was i'm sure there are other initiatives that have also been going on so it's a great way to turn a happy day into one that benefits more people as well so um well done to anybody who has been doing something like that um so it's been 10 years of William and Kate Russell I mean you've not you weren't you weren't well 10 years of married life William and Kate anyway you weren't reporting on them when it was their gosh no that seems like a lifetime ago I had no idea what I was doing um no I'm where do you um, think they are like how do you assess the well, do you okay. know, from a sort of outsider, not even just from an outsider's point of view before I joined this gig, that um, I think certainly from either pe- speaking to people in the palace or speaking to others who have done this job 
um, a lot longer than I, I they, they would tend to agree with my assumption, which is, you know, as, a, as an observer as well, that it's really been in the last sort of three, maybe four years, that they have really, their star has taken off. And maybe that was because, um, you know, arguably when um, Megan came on the scene, and Harry, they didn't need to look after Harry so they could get on with their own thing. And then they had more of an identity, just the two of them, because it all started out with doing heads together and projects with Harry as well. Um, and then when they've been able to sort of set up their own foundation, take that on as they have in the last couple of years. And and just, and Kate having more of an identity. I wrote it the weekend, actually. I wrote this piece about how when you look at the 10 year period, and certainly, that Kate didn't want to rush into the job. And, and certainly she didn't because it's taken her this, this amount of time to really get to grips with those major um, issues. Let's look at, you know, the Back to Nature project, the early years development that that's taken on, the, the issues with baby banks and things that will have societal change and maybe not instantly, maybe not 10 years, but will over the course of her royal life perhaps a generation or two that she's laid the foundations, And I think that was always the key that she never, there was never any pressure on her to sort of jump into things and perhaps playing a devil's advocate on the other side. That's perhaps where Harry and Meghan went wrong because they just wanted to do everything straight away. They were asking questions why they couldn't do this that and the other, and they wanted to, you know, do everything very, very instantly. Um, and so that's why they've they've gone on their own way. Whereas for William and Kate, it's always been a marathon and not a sprint. And only now, really, the last couple of years, I think, you're really seeing the benefits of the the um, and the fruits of their labours, mm. and certainly hers, because she's done all the groundwork. You know, when we talk about these the early years development. They'll tell you that this is the this is the nine years graft has gone into this, mm. and that's not only you won't have seen her do things for the last nine years, maybe not even the last five, but she's been meeting people all the time. She's decided, I think, obviously, changing her being a mother. Um, I mean, how old is George now? Seven. So, you know, obviously, those last seven years, her her viewpoint on where she wanted to take her her working life has changed immeasurably. Um, and I and I really do think they are happier than ever. You see, I mean, I don't think that those those videos are very well shot. Don't get me wrong; the pictures are great, but I, I actually do think that that is, you know, people who know them and speak to them and live their lives with them will tell you that they are happier than ever. They are more content. That there, of course, there's been lots of heartache and issues with the infighting with other members of the family that have um, really upset them. But they seem very, very united as a pair. And while one is allowed, it's not, there's, you know, no one's vying for, to be top dog. There's one, one is allowed to, to shine and the other one takes a back seat. Like you saw at the air cadets, Kate jumping in an air simulator, William holding her bag at the back. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, it's the other side. And and I think they, the, the, the childcare is inter- interchangeable as well. Um, and I think that that makes a really, really solid basis for their relationship. And it seems to work um, very, very well at the, at the moment. 
I think um, you talk about the sort of the last few years. I think probably Prince Philip, his retirement from royal life, that probably was a time again when they had, you know, it was a it was a step up for them because he obviously did so much work and had been doing it for such a long time that there was a gap there that needed filling. And it was interesting sort of seeing that picture of Kate when Philip was handing over the cadets sort of um, patronage responsibility, if you like, and Kate's fashion and how it how that has sort of changed and refined and i think i think she was possibly wearing one of the the sort of suits that from her early days in in royal life and i mean fashion's a funny thing i think we can probably all look at things that we wore five years ago and think oh goodness i mean certainly 10 years ago unless it was a mcqueen wedding dress in which case i think you're going to be totally fine forever whenever you look at that it's always going to be good but um you know that and i also wonder whether even her photography and that being a thing that is hers and that she does that none of the other royals really do. I mean, we saw the picture that Sophie Wessex had taken of, of the Queen and Prince Philip, which was released by the royals as, as part of their sort of tributes to Philip. But it's only really pictures from Kate that we see released. And she's been doing that for quite a while, certainly since the children were born, I think. And the sort of respect, if you like, that she's had for doing that and the you know appreciation i don't know whether she sees the comments on instagram or reads the photographer's assessments or whatever whether she even cares but the fact that there is this thing that is just hers i think that must be really helpful when you're coming into the firm a big institution and you're able to provide something that is a little bit different maybe and And, and gives you a bit and gives you confidence i think it's always well to have something in your locker isn't it that you do that you do particularly well, um, even if you are part of a team like the like the the business. And look at us three; we're doing our little podcast, and we we love doing it. And some people say, "Well done," and we love it. And <laughs> and and it's good to be able to to have that. And she's also taken that on from being a, a novice, and and then now she's you 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 have that platform of being elevated to the patron of the National Photographic Society and and then you take a real keen interest in it. And I'm sure she had an interest in it before, but by gosh, the access you must have speaking to all the, the experts and really getting a quite a knowledge foundation of your craft. I mean, just speak to um, you know, our good friend Ian Vogler, who will tell you, and he's written in the in the paper several occasions about how She's gone from strength to strength, and and she actually takes very very good photographs. And and what he always says is that the, it's very difficult to capture things in the moment whilst making them not look posed up. And you look at all the kids, the England football uh, jersey when um, George was on the floor. Yeah, and then even you know um, Louis riding his bike the other day. They're, they're great shots. So question came in, this is fortuitous that I remembered this, just this was an accident while we were having, happy accident while we we're having this conversation, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, RM Davis 065, I'm sorry, I don't know your real name because I can't see it on your Instagram, but when photos taken by the Duchess of Cambridge and are published by the media, does she receive compensation? If so, do we know what she does with it? Donate it to a charity or their foundation? And I mean, the answer to that question is simply that essentially they're released for they're released for public use without so essentially no copy non-copyright if you yeah if doing yeah. daft things with them yeah you can't you put them on a tea towel or, or a mug you can't start selling them 
No. Or, and some of them have caveats that you can only use them for like a few months or a year. And then after that, you need to ask special permission. But you can't you can't set up a, a stall at a car boot and start knocking them out with a load of plates. <laughs> So, so it's it's one of those sort of I don't know fair dealings. I think is probably the the closest um, the closest sort of explanation. Yeah, yeah. Treat them treat them respectfully, and um, and it's okay to use them. Although, I guess so. if if Kate is listening, she might be thinking this is a good wheeze, and I will be asking for donations to my uh, to my charitable causes for this. But um, no, isn't it? It was a really it was an interesting thought. So thank you for sharing that question with us. Um, so, right, time now to hear from some other people. And our friend Zoe Forsey, Mirror Online Features Editor, has um, done one of her, you know, she, she finds interesting people to talk to and then has a little chat about it, what it's really like to work with the Royals. So let's hear who she's been talking to this time. Hello, yes, I am joined by Matt Hyde, who is the CEO of The Scouts. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Great to be with you, Zoe. So, like I said, we just wanted to have you on because you have worked very closely with Kate um, in recent years as part of her work with The Scouts. Uh, So we just wanted to kind of find out a little bit more about what she does. So can you tell us first off, how did she first become involved? Well, she first became involved as a volunteer back in January 2012. And uh, we've had this fantastic engagement with her ever since. I mean, it was such a brilliant opportunity to promote flexible volunteering, which is what she uh, did as a volunteer helping out with a a cub pack in, in Anglesey. And subsequently, we've had various engagements leading up to the announcement of her as one of our joint presidents. Uh, back in uh, last year in 2020. So obviously over the years, you know, that's that's been a long time then that she's been involved with you guys and what you do. And um, so what kind of engagements has she done? What kind of events? When have you, you know, what kind of things has she done? Well, she has, has helped us to showcase particular areas that we've wanted to focus on. So uh, back in Uh, December 2014 she for instance visited a group in an area of deprivation in in East London when we were launching a big campaign there about extending our reach into deprived communities across the the country she's um she was at our Cubs 100 centenary of Cub Scouting um event in uh December 2016 uh visiting a Cub pack in uh Kings Lynn and then more recently, she visited our headquarters at, at Gilwell Park uh, a couple of years ago now um, to uh, explore one of our pilot projects, which has been extending scouting to four and five year olds. And the whole area of early years is something that's so important to the Duchess of Cambridge. So what we've tried to do as well throughout those visits is align things that we want to talk about as scouts, but that she is passionate about, whether that be about early years, um, uh, development in, in, in younger children or mental health and well-being, which, of course, you'll know that um, the Duke and Duchess are so, so passionate about. And so you've been lucky enough to, to meet Kate several times, haven't you? I have. Yes, that's right. So as someone that, you know, obviously many of us don't really have that, you know, have that. We obviously know lots about her in terms of her public work. But as someone who's met her, what, what's she like as a person? 
Oh, I mean, totally um, charming. Um, very good at pe- putting people at ease. Because um, you can imagine, you know, whether you're a um, scout leader or a young person or what have you, you're, you're, when you're meeting the Duchess of Cambridge, some people are kind of like in 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 awe or um, a bit starstruck. But she's fantastic at asking the right questions and listening to people and just naturally good at engaging. Good at engaging people of all ages as well, I'd say. She really does bring the best out of, of young people and um and and really wants to hear their stories as well so it's always such an exciting moment when you get to spend time with her and and just see how she can shine but also bring the best out of others and she always gets really she always kind of really gets in doesn't she she always gets her hands dirty she's never kind of just standing there and watching like there was Gosh, was it last year or the year before? I think time hasn't counted for the last 12 months. Is no, exactly, that's right. Um, where she, she was roasting marshmallows, wasn't she? And she was kind of helping with lots of like, you know, kind of um, crafts and things like that. That's right. So that was a, a visit we did in uh, Northolt um, to a scout group there to thank volunteers who'd kept scouting going during the uh, pandemic, uh, running events online um, over Zoom and the like. And... Um, and yeah, you're right. She she there was she was um, getting involved in craft activities. She was um, toasting marshmallows around around a campfire. And and that that the advantage of being a volunteer herself is that she's not um, not only she not daunted by doing things like that. Actually, she really enjoys doing them. And uh, I mean, I know she was saying even like last year they'd spent so much time um, with the family getting outdoors and lighting fires as well. So this is something that's really um, core to her uh, belief and what she's passionate about, which is I think she's experienced the power of being outdoors on her own well-being and the family's well-being, and she wants other people to experience that as well. Yeah, because that's one of the things you mentioned earlier about her, um, you know, the early years work she's done, but she's spoken so passionately about the childhood that she had. Obviously, the Middleton family spent so much time outside, but also that something that she's doing with with her own children, with George, Charlotte and Louis, you know, what were they kind of, you know, they're outside basically every day, yeah. rain or shine. And that's something that, you know, kind of message that the Scouts really supports that, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, what we do is we get young people outside having fun, experiencing adventure and, and developing skills for life. And that is so in line with, as I say, what she believes herself. She's also an incredible role model for the girls and young women, in particular in, in, in the, um, the scout movement. So in the time that she's been uh, with us as a, uh, as a, as a volunteer, um, our, um, our well, our volunteer numbers have grown from about ninety-eight thousand to one hundred fifty-six thousand, but also female membership stood at one hundred fourteen thousand um, when she joined, and are now one hundred eighty-nine thousand. So that's about sixty-five percent increase. Now, of course, that's not all down to her, but I just think the bringing that uh, her presence as a fantastic role model has just been so helpful for us uh, and getting the message across that scouting is is for all genders it's not just not just for for boys and and young men 
Yeah, no, fantastic. And and I know I promised I wasn't going to ask you about fashion, but I have now just thought <laughs> she does often look the park as well. You know, she's, she's, she, we don't see her in full uniform, but, you know, she does normally have, you know, talk us through what she has kind of worn yeah i i'm i'm in dangerous territory if i'm gonna <laughs> if i'm gonna start talking about fashion so uh, i'm probably better for your for your um uh, next person you're speaking to but what she wear often wears is a scout scarf sometimes called a necker um, which every scout wears and it's often tied in what's called a friendship knot so rather than the sort of traditional woggle it's a bit more of a relaxed style and um well, yeah she'll always wear that to any of the engagements we've got and that's the thing is you know across the world there are 55 million scouts and all of them wear a neckerchief or a scarf and that's one of the things that kind of binds us all together and that shared identity so again what is, always strikes me is that when we do things um, with the Duchess and we get that fantastic coverage, I'm always being contacted by other scout organisations and scout leaders from across the whole globe who've seen the coverage and the footage. So, so her impact is far bigger than just what's felt in the UK. So, you know, you'll end up with things in Paris Match or I'll, I'll end up with um, being contacted by people in the US saying, what amazing coverage for scouting, isn't this brilliant? So, it, yeah, really, really big impact. Fantastic. And obviously we see her, kind of, you know, we see the photos of her, we see the little bits of interviews and things like that, the kind of official side. But is, you know, does her, you know, what, what's she like behind the scenes? Is that different to what we see in public or is it all kind of, you know, is it all quite similar? Um, I, I, it's pretty, it's consistent really with what, with what you see. And, and um, you know, I think that's why there are some people in the public eye who have such uh, such resonance with the public, and that's because what you see is what you get. You know, we've I've got a uh, we're, we're lucky to have a chief scout in in Bear Grylls who what you see is exactly what you get. I mean, I, I I've had moments where I've had um, uh, he's forced me to do more uh, adventurous things, and, <laughs> and and you're just like you would be on a running wild or, or something like that. You know, you're um, and he's acting in exactly the same way as encouraging you and you know never give up. And I think that's that's why some people, just as I say, are so resonate so much with the public because what you see is what you get. Obviously, be you know the you know kind of being the scouts, the majority of engagement that she inter- like attends with you guys involves children, and and as you said before, she always looks completely at ease when she's you know chatting to kids and kind of you know leaning down and kind of just getting involved in everything. What kind of parts have you noticed of that? You know, kind of actually being there with her. Well, I think she, um, as you say, is not afraid to. Um, um, muck in and get involved and they love that um, they obviously if some of the younger ones have a view of what's going to arrive as a princess like almost <laughs> like a sort of Disney princess or something like that so that always takes a, a bit of a, a get a used to but as I say what she's very good at is um, asking the right questions um, in order for them to talk and share their own stories and I think that's that's pretty amazing. If you're a young person, you've had that experience that you'll think about that for the rest of your life, that you've, you've been listened to by um, a member of the, of the Royal family and that you've been um, for that moment, you're their sole focus of attention. And, and that's really, it's really powerful. And, and um, 
you know, I think we underestimate that at our peril, really, because I just think there is something that a bit of joy that's brought. That's what. I, that's what I, the great thing about my job when when I do these these visits is, you see this incredible joy on people's faces. When I, when I um when we did the early years um pilot work, and we'll be we say more about um this particular project uh, later in the summer. The, the all of the pilots we've done were all in areas of deprivation. And some of the people who uh, had joined us um, uh, from a da- in Gilwell Park and those that had come from Birmingham had never been outside of Birmingham, let alone been on holiday. So, so to go from that and then have a day where you're spending time with the Duchess of Cambridge, um, uh, building dens with her, um, uh, it just is such a... Um, it's a privilege to see because it really lights up people's lives and gives people something that they can talk about to others and just that real sense of, sense of joy. Brilliant. And so what are the, you mentioned about having more volunteers signing up, but what have the other kind of advantages being of having Kate as your president? I think, as I say, it'd be having a female um, uh, president, joint president, and um, promoting those messages about um, scouting today, that it's, um, uh, even though we've, we've had um, girls and young women in full membership for 25 years, um, not many of the public understood that uh, 10 years ago, a lot more do now, because we measure that every year as one of the things we ask when we do our um, uh, perception work. Um, it's clearly the, the sheer profile. So, you know, if you get a great um, image of her enjoying uh, an event, then you can be pretty confident that that will be on at least one front page, if not a few more. <laughs> um, but also the, I would say it's also the, the championing, championing of the causes that we feel passionate about and that align with her passions as well. Um, really what we're doing here is to promote the power of scouting at a time when young people really, really need it. And they really, really do now having come out of the, of a year of, of lockdown and mental health challenges and uh, having to catch up on their um, uh, learning and particularly at certain, in certain communities across the UK, um, whether that be the, as I say, the areas of deprivation or black Asian and minority ethnic communities her passions are the same and she wants those young people to have those same um, incredible opportunities and experiences. And so I think from her point of view, there's a sense also of feeling that she's doing good by helping us to reach those young people and providing a fantastic message about volunteering as well. So we are blessed. We're really, really lucky. And so just finally then, do you have any particular favourite stories of the time you've spent with Kate? I suppose go, just going back to that day when we focused on our um, those early years pilots with four and five-year-olds at, at our headquarters, um, there was a great moment when, uh, as you all know, the kind of press pack move, move around and follow her with a whole sort of snapping of, uh, of cameras. And they'd moved on um, to, to get the next picture. But what had happened was um, the Duchess had been left with um, 
uh, the, the the young people who were really wanted to do den building with her, and they um they they made this den, but then they wanted to check whether it was um. Uh, waterproof or not okay. so she, they, they made her that was great i mean they so they basically encouraged her to go in there and then they were all there armed with water to check if it um if it was going to go on top of her or not and suddenly you could see that all that the press had realized they were missing out on this fantastic picture running back scrambling back to get this incredible image which they did, and of course that was the image that that played out on many of the front pages the next day. But it was just that moment of magic you could see unfolding, and that um, almost there was a sort of slightly mis- mischievous element from these four and five year olds who just wanted yeah. to have fun. But she just absolutely went with it. That's what I think great is about. That's what's great about these visits that do involve kids is that wouldn't have happened if it was load of adults. Exactly. Thought, oh no, we couldn't do that. Obviously, she needs to go and have her perfect hair for the next photo but you know you don't get that with kids it's like yeah this is a completely you know we have to check if it's waterproof absolutely right and they did (laughs) (laughs) fantastic lovely well thank you so much for joining me today matt and really quickly if anyone else wants to find out anything more about the scouts or kate's work within where should they where should they look to read up more well we're always after more volunteers and the difference it makes to not just young people's lives but the people who volunteer with us as well is incredible in terms of mental health and well-being and and the development of skills and so if you want to find out about that and get involved please go to scouts.org.uk and as matt said earlier obviously there are scout groups all around the world so if we've got any listeners um who are elsewhere as well there's lots of information there as well thank you so much matt it was lovely to chat to you fantastic thanks very much indeed Zoe. So thank you very much for Zoe to, for sorting out that interview and we look forward to hearing who she has up her sleeve next. Um, and Russell, it must be a while since you've been out on a job with Ian Vogler because you don't get to go out and about quite so much anymore. I saw him in Windsor and our meeting was so fleeting. Uh, actually, you know, we had dinner together with Arthur Edwards, which was very nice. Um, but yeah, we haven't over been on funeral. a proper... Over oh, the funeral, yeah. I mean, obviously... It yeah. would have been much better to uh, on a tour or whatever, but that is the first time I've seen him in over a year. Well, I'm glad um, that you were reunited. And um, I, I was very excited just to see him through the medium of the Facebook Live this I morning. tuned in this morning. Oh, well, thank you for your compliment about my fascinator. I have, um, those of you who are follow us on the Instagram will see that I got dressed up for the occasion. I mean, you know. Not very many opportunities to get dressed like this. But thank you for your compliments. It was lovely. I, I, nice I thought it was a very nice to uh, turn on my. I was going to say my television, but it was on Facebook. <laughs> turn it on and see and see both of you. He looked rather well, didn't he? He yeah. did. It was very very jolly. And his Harry really... Potter glasses on. <laughs> well, I've got my Harry Potter glasses on today as well. So anyway, <laughs> it was lo- it was lovely to catch up with Ian because unlike Russell and I, he was actually there for the wedding day. 10 years ago so it was great to hear his recollection so let's let's have a listen to that if you'd rather see the video version then you can head over to the facebook but yeah here's the audio of our chat earlier today lovely to see you ian it's been a while since we chatted on the royal podcast pod save the queen and it's nice to be back it's very nice to be back and talking about a happier occasion than than of recent weeks Yes, it's a bit. Um, it's been a bit lively recently. Uh, well, 
initially sort of um, chaos and then sadness with the funeral of Prince Philip. But yes, like you said, happy to remember a really grand royal occasion. And I think we've been quite spoiled over the last few years. There's been loads of royal weddings, but back in 2011, huge excitement because it had been a long time since it had been such a big do, really. Yeah, it had been. I can't remember how many years, but quite a few years, wasn't it? A long, long time. So you were out, I was in the office that day doing all of the, you know, internet type stuff and you were out on the ground covering things. Um, what's, what's your sort of abiding memory of that day? Well, it was a long, we had lots of colleagues, lots of photographers all over the place. We had military planning, we had meetings and uh, I was on what they call the QVM, the Queen Victoria Memorial, which is looks like a big birthday cake right in front of the palace, but it's quite a few hundred metres from the palace. And that's where you see the balcony for the uh, the kiss picture, which is always a favourite for the media, both here and abroad. So because of road closures and letting the public get near it, um, we basically had to be there about six o'clock in the morning. So a long, long wait. Roads were closed. I remember buying a big trolley from B&Q the day before and loading everything onto this trolley from a hotel nearby and then having to basically trudge a good couple of miles you know down the road to get there to be there about six o'clock in the morning with loads of colleagues to to wait it out basically luckily as you remember as you can see from the pictures it was a nice day (laughs) yeah it would have been a bit of a shame for everybody including you if you've been standing there in the pouring rain and um, dedication to the cause 6am start and heading out but I bet there were some royal fans out there with you as well as all of the photographers yeah there's a there's a plan it's a similar plan they use at Trooping of the Colour when Trooping of the Colour is allowed the the public hang about on the Mall, which is uh, further up from the palace well, you can see in the background picture you can sort of see the Mall. and the public stand around the Mall. the Mall's are obviously close to traffic they stand in the road and then nearer the time, the uh, police escort the public down. So there's thousands of people waiting up the road for for the event to happen, for the couple to come onto the balcony. And the, you could hear the noise and the excitement of those people. It just sort of adds to the occasion. Obviously, we saw the carriages going before the wedding and the build-up was, uh, you know, it was hugely anticipated event. But ironically, being right there in front of it, we were somewhat cut off from the world because communications were, were we were struggling because everyone who turned up seemed to want to stream it to their friends via their phones so we were a little bit cut off I think I just had my little transistor radio it's like a bit of a throwback to the to the 80s you know just to make sure everything was going to time well yeah the internet 10 years ago and mobile phones weren't quite what they are today really not so super speedy it was that that classic thing come new year's eve where where your mum would send you a text message at about half past nine to say i'm wishing you a happy new year now in case the network goes down at midnight and obviously they still do that because that's what mums do but you know all of those people trying to share all of that excitement and you know most people obviously millions around the world watching it on tv at home how much of a sense did you have of you know kind of what was unfolding and where things where things were in progress because I guess you need to be you need to know when it's going to be your moment and be ready to get that picture because it's such a major event I mean it'd be a nightmare to miss the moment yeah it would be but the uh the balcony picture you got some some heads up 
they basically open the the doors so um you know once a guy comes out of those glass doors once they're open you know that um everything's about to happen all the royal family are about to come out the couple came out and you know from from then on in you're looking at you know a few minutes maybe three minutes four minutes the whole thing so you're there from six o'clock in the morning waiting for those few minutes of of activity to make it work and potentially make you know any photographer wants to get on the front page of their publication that's what you're trying to achieve so you know that's what you want and but it's, you know it's, it's got to happen first basically they've got to you know they've got to have the kiss which obviously they did and it and it's, it's it's got to be you know it's got to be in front of you which more or less it would be so but there's various technical challenges it's a long way away it's several hundred meters the biggest lens made was was were handed out to us by by the wonderful people at Canon, they managed to find them from all over Europe, shipped them into London, and lent them out to us. And uh, amazing, but you can't legislate for heat haze. That's a fantastic enemy of photographers. Even in the UK, believe it or not, heat haze can be a problem, especially when you're working over those distances. And then the people that are allowed down in front of the palace, as they move down, obviously there's their movement, there's dust coming up, there's pollen, there's heat, there's all of these factors that you can't legislate for until it's actually happened. You don't know how it'll affect the image until after you've taken the picture. So you've got all those things to, to take into account. Uh, and then obviously transmitting the thing, but my um, the then picture editor, Ian, was he was right, you know, it's, it's great you're going to be there. It's great you're going to get a picture. But how bloody hell are you going to get it to me? You know, everyone will be on their phone. So we uh, hired, believe it or not, a sat phone, a little box of tricks as big as a laptop that you point to the sky and your picture goes literally up to a satellite in the sky to beam back down to Canary Wharf about four miles away at the cost of something like 10 quid a minute. I think it's usually, you know, the defence editor when he's being sent out to Iraq and Afghanistan and all those dangerous places. It's normally him that gets sent off with the sat phone. But there you are in the middle of, in the yeah. middle of London, in the big, in the middle of a happy day, using this to make sure, make sure the picture gets back. And how is it in the pen with all of the photographers? Is everybody good natured, or is there a bit of like jostling and elbows to get the best position? No, it's all it's fairly. Um, you space yourselves out. Everybody knows everybody, so it was made up of 75% of British photographers that knew each other. There were some international photographers in there. Um, at the time, owing to the um, government to take on these things, we actually had to pay quite a considerable amount of money. So we were very relieved to find that the people who put the stand up, I think it's English Heritage or somebody, had done us the courtesy of putting in some restroom facilities, as our American friends would say, because that was a concern when you're going to be there from that time of day. But, um, yeah, it was really well-natured. Everybody's, you know, trying to get the same thing. They're trying to get the front page of their publication or the guys working for agencies are trying to get as many publications as possible. So everyone is sort of in it together. So it's it's great to, to work with colleagues that are such you know, old friends as well. And then once you get the picture, you've then got to look at it on your, you can look at it on a computer or you can send it directly from the camera. If you want to make sure it's a really good picture, you're going to get it onto the laptop and have a look at it. But then you're in bright sunlight. So then you see this fabulous image of a load of photographers sitting on the ground with their jackets or coats over their heads to get some shade, even on a hot day, to see whether or not the picture's worth sending. It's, uh, 
there's not really a piece of equipment made for that. So your coat or jacket does for that little task anyway. Your picture, the iconic picture of the day that was on the Mirror's front page. It wasn't just a kiss on the balcony, as marvellous a moment as that was. You know, William resplendent in his uniform, Kate looking absolutely gorgeous in her McQueen dress and the tiara and the, you know, really sort of elegant uh, bouquet of flowers. And then obviously romance there. And then, you know, one of the bridesmaids stealing the show brilliantly. um, And just that sort of... I don't know, real life and happiness and just sort of a funny moment as well as the the yeah. romance and the grandeur. Yeah, the poor poor little girl. Um, I've forgotten her name now. Rose I think. Right, it, it? Yeah. So she's obviously been told, you know, this is what's happening and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And obviously you've got to be on your best behaviour. But no one told her that there's going to be a great big flyover from the RAF of, you know, four or five massive aeroplanes including thousands of people screaming uh and all these planes coming over the top and i think she was just you know really freaked out and yeah there are some versions of this picture from other colleagues from different angles she doesn't really feature in the picture but luckily for me she featured in the picture and i think it makes it really makes it doesn't it there, there she is i mean that picture will obviously maybe you know be with her forever and i think it it helped tell the story in a in a sort of entertaining way absolutely it was a very memorable moment i mean there was it was such a, a brilliant day and i, I know there's um, i don't think it's a picture that we've we've got together but the, when they popped back out and did their little turnaround um in the in the in the classic car having a little drive about and it they, you know, there were there were elements that were throw were a throwback to previous royal weddings. You've got the balcony kiss, but it still felt like it was their day done a bit differently, and that they'd had had a bit of fun with it. I mean, you've you've spent, I mean, not a lot of time, but quite a lot of time with them over the past ten years. Um, you went on their first tour, which is not that long after they got married, and you know, multiple tours with them since. How? They seem to be a really sort of strong partnership, both as a, as a family unit and as a royal working unit. What's your experience been sort of seeing them up close? Yeah, they do. Um, they they do a great job of there's an art to this sort of talking small talk, you know, talking to people who you've never met about something you might not know very much about. They're obviously briefed beforehand, but. Whenever they do, that is a picture of them last week, air cadets they were talking to. I'm pretty sure that um, yeah, Prince William knows quite a bit about the military. But they engaged with these, the youngsters there last week, chatting about all a variety of topics. And they seem to master the people that they speak to are left, you know, without any doubt that they actually, you know, engage with them and were interested in them. So they're good. The best bit is when it's anything competitive, right, where... Last week, they um, with the air cadets, the um, Duchess was invited to get in a flight simulator. It's like a looks like the cockpit of a small aircraft rigged up to computers. And as she got into it, William's standing there saying, "Oh, this will be interesting," you know, thinking that perhaps she might crash, but uh, she didn't actually. I think she kept it flying. So yeah, they get competitive, and that always turns into good pictures. You know, they've done some canoeing stuff, some rowing stuff on different tours, and it's genuine competitiveness and it makes for great pictures. I think we saw that, I think back in Canada, was it? They were racing dragon boats on that very first 
on that very first trip and I think there were so many things in that trip that did really sort of set mm. the tone for for what we've seen of them since in terms of you know having fun and, and mucking in and being sort of out and about and then also super glam you know that I think it was a dress for a BAFTA thing in LA that that Kate wore so you know that is still one of those really memorable pictures definitely I ended up with I think the first two years of Kate's royal fashion are indelibly ingrained in my head because I was writing about it so much so much of the time um how do you think they've sort of changed and and grown I guess into their roles I mean, 10 years three kids later um and very much now a central you know fundamental part of the working royal family they had that time out initially you know William was still working as a helicopter pilot they were living on Anglesey immediately after they got married so they had they had a bit of time together first and then they've moved into being full-time very busy very busy working royals really yeah I think it's for any couple to you know have three kids in 10 years that's quite hard I mean obviously they've got a support network they've got They've got help with it but there's still a lot to do there and uh now i think 10 years ago they were they were the younger royals and we didn't now things are changing obviously with the loss of the duke of edinburgh we're all more and more aware of the queen's age now aren't we that's coming up a lot obviously and things will change you know nobody's going to go on forever um so i think they're becoming more and more towards where they're going to go next you know who knows where where it will go but um i think they treat you know they take things seriously but they're so good with with young i i think i've seen them more with younger people than older people and they fit in there really really well so i think they're getting towards you know being molded more for what will come next Although they did do a very nice job of the bingo calling during one of their coronavirus visits with the sort of virtual visits with the one of the care homes, I think. Um, some lovely pictures have been released today, a couple of portraits by Chris Floyd, who works for camera photographer, who works for Camera Press, I think, and who, who made his name originally in the Britpop era, which would have been when, you know, when William and Kate were growing up and uh, all of those great bands of the 90s. Um, so Chris Floyd took these two pictures he posted on his Instagram and said I recently visited Cambridge for the first time in my life that same day by an astonishing coincidence was also the day I was asked to photograph the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge for their 10th wedding anniversary it was a, it was a thrill to spend some time with them at Kensington Palace especially as the Duchess is a rather keen photographer happy anniversary um, I think I think it's interesting looking at these pictures I think they've they look they look very well ten years on and yeah they do they they just look like pictures of, of of a couple you know they don't necessarily look like the kind of image we'd expect to see of the future king of England but they they are really nice now, you could argue that someone in the picture's got less less hair than they had ten years ago but you know that might well be the same for me but all <laughs> in all I think yeah they look really nice pictures they just look relaxed and and happy not too formal. Uh, and nicely nicely done pictures not not overly complicated not fussy lighting or fancy backgrounds or anything just nice pictures nice way to mark the occasion it's interesting as also chris floyd has twice i think won the um taylor westing photograph the portrait prize which is held at the national portrait gallery each year which is one of kate's patronages so a little link there which i thought was quite interesting um who are your favorite royals to photograph in well, I think they're all um, 
they're all very good. Uh, the, the most difficult, potentially, you could have said, the Duke of Edinburgh famously told a photographer to just bleeping take the picture. He never wanted to hang about. He was always in a hurry to get his picture done and, and go off to the next thing. Um, I think they're always um, always amenable, you know. The Prince of Wales, Prince Charles seems to, he quite enjoys having his picture taken. He he knows, he's more understanding, I think, of the role of, of the media because obviously he's been he's been doing it for a very long time, uh, and so and Camilla too. They both understand the the value of pictures. I think you know the younger royals understand it too because you know we need people want to see what they're up to, and without pictures and, and footage, no one's going to be able to do that. It is interesting that the way it works. You know, people maybe don't know that. We were with the um, Cambridges in, I think, in Scandinavia, and there was a local photographer who was going to come on a visit to a museum. And uh, he said to me, oh, what what do you call them? I said, what do you mean, what do, you, what do I call them? He said, you know, the, the, the royals, how do you call out to them if you want them to, to look at your camera? I said, well, we just don't. He said, no, no, no. He said, look, what do you say when you want, like, William to look at your camera? I said, we don't do that. That just doesn't happen. He couldn't understand it anyway. He tried it about two minutes into the job, about three minutes into the job, he suddenly was being asked to leave the building. So it's a, it's a different, it's an interesting relationship. We're there, but they don't want us to, to interrupt. They don't want us to speak to them. We're just there to record the event and that's it. Occasionally, if there's a group picture, you might, you know, ask them to look one way or the other. So um, there was one last, we went to Cyprus and William was supposed to hand over some presents to the commanding officer of a base. So they all lined up for it, and he was standing right in front of the Christmas tree, and it was ruining the picture. So I said, oh, sir, you, you know, you're blocking. And he thought I meant I was blocking Kate. So he said, oh, you, you just want to see a picture, a picture of my wife, thank you. You're block I'll go. I said, no, no, you're blocking the Christmas tree. He said, oh, I didn't see that there. So, you know, it's a... It's an interesting relationship whereby we just are there, but what's like sort of we're, we're there to be to do it to do what we've got to do, but we're not there to to speak to them, and we don't say, "Oi, sir, look this way, that way," you know. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, well, hopefully, now that um, we are coming out of lockdown, there'll be a few less virtual calls and a few more real life ones as the royals start to get out and about again. As I'm sure you've missed. Being, being able to be out and about on jobs and, and travelling with them and having adventures. So fingers crossed for a return to that safely and, um, and getting a bit back to normal. Um, happy 10th wedding anniversary to William and Kate. It's Tin. I wonder what they'll have got each other. Thank you very much for joining us today. Nice to see you. You have to watch out, Russell. I'm coming for your TV gig. Me, me, me on the me on the Facebook telly with Ian Vogler. With Both him. of you. Very impressed. The, challenging for the crowd. I mean, I put makeup on today and everything. This never happened. It's no, normally you with the slap after you. <laughs> I need it. I, I tell you, I TV need it. Show. So, um, what excitement do we have to look forward to? Anything particular coming up? Well, we've been treated this week to a glut of photos, haven't we? So one may pres- wonder if we will see any photographs for Princess Charlotte's birthday on Sunday. The Sunday newspapers will be hoping so. They will be keeping everything crossed. Released under an embargo, and so often they miss out because... Yeah, they do. And so um, I don't know what is decided yet, but um, 
one may one may you know might uh, might think that uh, some stage over the weekend we might be uh, treated to some new photographs. Let's hope so. And anything else exciting? There is something exciting. I can't tell you about it. Oh, I hate it when you do that. <laughs> I mean, I can't. I'm not. Even I, mean, I think he's just making it up. Say. There isn't anything. Yeah, he's yeah. just, he's just there's teasing nothing. us. There's nothing. Well, no, there is. There is. There is something exciting next week. There's a couple of things actually next week. It's, it's well, quite exciting. That's so, good. yeah. We can look forward to talking about it next week. Yeah, it's when been it has really happened. Yeah, I th- I th- I feel like we're being, you know, I know it, I end up do realise it. It's just a couple of weeks since um, Prince Philip's passing, and but once the royal mourning period is over, you almost feel like it's you know, you've kind of heard the royals say it themselves that Prince Philip would say, "Just get on with it, get back to normal." There's a lot of things that have happened over the last year. Um, they obviously haven't been able to get out and about and do their jobs that they must be chomping at the bits to do. Um, certainly, this new the new concept of the senior roles, who's going to be doing what, needs to be sorted out. Um, I don't know whether it's this. You know, I know there's these reports of a big summit between William and and Charles, and I think it's more of a process than a summit. And definitely, they would they will be coming together and deciding on the future of what happens. They've got to make up for lost time. I think there is that there is definitely that feeling that they are really committed to getting out there, trying to get away, trying to get around the country and then trying to get away as soon as possible when it's safe to do so. And so, you know, we might see a big glut of things coming up in the next six months. Um, and so, yeah, fingers crossed, be exciting times. It will be exciting times and whatever happens, whether they're doing um, video calls, uh, releasing the pictures on the uh, social media or actually really out and about in real life, we will be following everything that they are up to with great interest. Um, If you are listening on Apple, uh, there's some new release has gone out and some weird things are happening with the podcasts. On, if you've got the like super up to date, I don't know, iOS, you know, they always do all those updates and everything goes a little bit wonky for a while sometimes. Anyway, so if it has gone a little bit wonky for you, then hopefully we will find our way into your uh, podcast library soon or otherwise you can always find us on the on the twitter and the instagram and click through from there and hopefully you can then give it a little bit of a prod to make sure that you don't miss out because we very much enjoy um our time chatting with you every week and um hearing your questions and comments which reminds me i just need to check one final thing and see whether anybody had anything to say i'm sure you all did where's it gone one follower, Rumbling Girl, our 10th anniversary came and went and we didn't celebrate until the 11th. We went away for the weekend and while out to dinner, my husband gave me a CD of disco music, which I love, but this was a knockoff band. I really didn't want to open it, but he insisted. And there in the centre of the CD was a diamond eternity ring. We've now been together 33 years and that ring never leaves my finger. Happy anniversary, William and Catherine. Oh, well done, Rambling Girl and Mr. Rambling Girl. That is, uh, that is very lovely. Um, and then... Our regular friend, UNC94 gal, Karen, I think. I said earlier a trip to Vegas, but I had the year wrong in my memory. We took the kids to London for a week and Paris for a week. They were eight and six and we had a great time. Oh, goodness, being able to travel. What a fabulous thing, whether it's Vegas or London or Paris. Tremendous. So anyway, those of you who have celebrated 10 years of marriage, well done. And keep I'm also, yeah, I'm also going to give a shout out to, to, the, to the 
people behind Kate's Rangers because have you seen that they have set up this as part of 10 years of Will and Kate, they've created a wish list for baby basics. Um, celebrating with a baby bank. Yeah. Celebrating the, uh, the 10th anniversary in the way um, that has proved quite popular in the past, but this is a great initiative to, instead of monetary donations, the items purchased will go directly to baby basics. And we obviously spoke earlier about, Kate being involved with them quite heavily. Um, I think there's something that we'll, we'll see a lot more in the coming months as well. Um, so the items will di- di- go directly to Baby Basics and delivered across the UK to families in need. So there is a link on the at Kate's Rangers Twitter, which is pinned at the moment, and you can donate donate via an Amazon.co.uk wish list. Choose the items into the cart. They go into your checkout. You can select the address. Uh, for Baby Basics, add a name and a message if you like, and then they will deliver it. And so far, I'm just checking on the total right now because it's uh, it's nearly £20,000 that have been raised so far. And that was a, um, a donation that was updated about a couple of hours ago. And they said, Baby Basics have said, we are raising £20,000. Thank you so much for your amazing donations. Please continue to support to help us reach our 50 for 50 goal of 50 grand. And you can donate via a UK Virgin Money link, which is also posted on there. So get clicking. Yeah, it's uh, Um, Kate Rangers and Baby Basics UK are the Twitter handles. One other more mundane shout out is that um, to Elizabeth Holmes, who when uh, it's her fault now. So I saw Kate and William both wearing blue in their portraits. And I was like, yes, Elizabeth Holmes picked entirely the right colour to theme her book and her outfits and all of those things with her HRH. But we had a really nice chat back in back in the autumn sometime months and months and months ago. Feels like a lifetime. But anyway, Elizabeth, shout out to you if you are listening. Right. This time we really are done. This is the longest wrap-up in the history of the world ever. Um, Russell, have a great week. Yes. Lovely followers, um, listeners. See you on Instagram and Twitter at PodSave. Um, Leave us a review, subscribe, all of those great things. Um, Have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and until next time... PodSave the Queen! for listening to today's episode later today i'm going to go up on the eighth floor and send a clear message uh, to the world america is back america is back 100 days in office, 78 years of age, a 69% approval rating, a 50% emission reduction target, 40 executive orders, a 28% corporate tax proposal, seven laws enacted by Congress, three stumbles up the steps of Air Force One, two dog bites, and one mammoth task on his hands. Leading the most powerful nation on Earth out of a devastating pandemic, and into a post-COVID world. After first attempting to become president in 1987, how has Biden shaped up now he's finally reached the Oval Office? What's his vision for the United States on the global stage, navigating complicated relationships with Russia, China and Europe? 
Hello, I'm Dermot Murnahan and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast. My name is Scott Carey and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a lifelong Republican and I voted for Joe Biden for president in the 2020 election. I don't agree uh, with some of President Biden's policy positions, but I felt strongly then that that election was about the soul of America. He has restored honor and dignity to the White House. He chose a cabinet of experienced professionals. He respects the rule of law. The COVID relief bill helped millions of struggling families. I disagree with his immigration policy and our infrastructure bill means just that. It should mean infrastructure. And there are too many uh, non-infrastructure related items that are too expensive. I'm also concerned about higher taxes. This is Lenny Bailey. I live in Southern California, about 40 miles southeast of Los Angeles. I think we feel more that there is an adult in charge now, you know, a, a good man that does indeed have empathy for um, family, but also loves the country and, and loves the foundation of America. I hope he focuses on that. He's walking a, a tightrope between the moderate and the uh, progressives, and he seems to be doing fine with that. Hi, my name is Deborah Zara Cobelt. I'm a TV correspondent, formerly with CNN. Generally, he's got favorable reviews, particularly the way he has handled the virus with the vaccinations and the availability of vaccinations. Also getting favorable, but complicated reviews on how he is handling immigration. That's always a hot spot here. Raising taxes, that's been an issue, even though it's primarily on the rich. People are afraid that in fact, if he raises taxes on the rich, that it will then have a trickle down effect with job losses. One big issue is gun violence. What is Joe Biden going to do with gun violence? My name is Isan Swan. I think Joe Biden has done some things that he should be proud of in his first 100 days in office. He has gotten much more control of the coronavirus than his predecessor, which we know kills black people and people of color at disproportionate rates. In his first few days, he asked the DOJ not to renew private prison contracts. He is said to be considering canceling up to $50,000 in student loan debt, which overwhelmingly belongs to black Americans. And it looks like there might be a chance for real police reform and policy changes. I think one thing to watch would be how far to the left Joe Biden goes as he sets the framework for the rest of his four years in office. When Donald Trump was leaving office, he left with such a, a terrible bang, quite frankly, set uh, by the tone on January the 6th with the insurrection. And so on inaugural day, there was not a a normal environment in Washington that you would have a festive environment. Instead, it looked like a war zone. And um, that's kind of what Biden inherited. Amorosa Manigold-Newman has had her fair share of experience with presidents working on Obama's 2016 campaign and as an aide to Donald Trump. How much has the healing process then then started and how successful has it been in just 100 days? You know, I think the healing process is slow. The country was so divided and it's going to take some time to kind of restore some sense of um, of civility, I would say. But certainly I can see that the nation is ready to come together. One thing on the positive side that President Biden inherited from the Trump administration was, of course, the the vaccine program, which he has put, used to good effect. 
Well, certainly there has always um, been a very interesting divide on the left and the right. But the one thing that people will come together on and agree on is that the need for a comprehensive distribution plan for the vaccine. And so one of the things that Biden will be touting during his speech uh, covering what his 100 days will be his success of assembling his coronavirus task force, his push for an immediate coronavirus legislation, as well as his own personalized, revised release of his vaccine distribution plan. I was very excited to see him rejoin the World Health Organization and, of course, keep Dr. Anthony Fauci as a close advisor and uh, someone who is overseeing the national recovery uh, from this COVID-19 pandemic. We've been talking about divisions and none more stark than the continuing one on race. And and talk to me about the Joe Biden, the Biden administration approach and through perhaps the prism of the the Derek Chauvin trial, the George Floyd murder and and Joe Biden's strong pronouncements on that. Yes, the day after the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict, Uh, for the murder of George Floyd. I I was very pleased to see that the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland has announced that the Justice Department would be launching an investigation into not just the Minneapolis Police Department, but other police departments for possible patterns of discrimination and excessive use of force. You would not have seen this during a Trump presidency. And so certainly uh, President Biden is taking a very strong position on making sure that he at least addresses racial equity in ways that his predecessor did not. In fact, he has talked about extending the Voting Rights Act, a comprehensive voting bill has passed, of course, the House, but I I don't believe that the Republicans have um, any desire to see it pass. So, you know, Biden made some very strong promises about what he would get done in the first 100 days. As you know, he dropped his idea of having an institute of a national police oversight commission. And he said that he would put more of his energy into the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act instead. But he's also signaling his position on race, isn't he? Just in the construction of his administration. Is it 50 percent diversity when it comes to the appointments and so many appointments that, of course, the the Trump administration never got around to filling? Yeah, the the Trump administration fell very short. As you know, I was the only African-American woman as a senior advisor to the president. And so, yes, Joe Biden's administration is one of the most diverse in terms of its appointments, not only at the senior executive level, but also Schedule C's, which make up most of the appointments into each of the government agencies. And some of the very high level appointments that he's made has really impressed me and, of course, the nation, which we see through his approval numbers. And what about the issue on the southern border? Still, you know, thousands upon thousands of people arriving in the United States, still the problems with uh, unaccompanied children, all the problems that the Trump administration had, Joe Biden's got them and more. Yes, he does. He made some commitments during his campaign about what he would get done on immigration in his first 100 days. And I have to tell you that, you know, I'd give him a C plus on immigration. One of the things that he talked about was introducing legislation that would give a pathway 
to citizenship for immigrants in the U.S. illegally, and especially those brought to the U.S. illegally as children. And he did that through executive action. He talked about what he wanted to do uh, with DACA to make the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals a permanent program. I am not sure that he has the support on the Hill to get that done, but he said that that was a priority. He also stated that he was going to stop family separations at the U.S.-Mexico border, and he hasn't quite completely done that because, as you know, there has been such a surge at the border, but he did sign an executive order establishing a task force focused on reuniting children and parents separated at the border. So as I stated, he would certainly get a C plus from me, but he still has to work on, um, you know, he he was effective at getting an executive order banning travelers uh, from Muslim countries removed. It's really a complicated issue, and 100 days is certainly not enough to reverse what's been happening for two decades. Okay, and lastly, I mean, the honeymoon's the 100 days, the honeymoon period, about to be over. Um, what do you think lies ahead? You know, what would you see as needing improvement uh, so far uh, from this administration? Well, one of the things that, that Joe Biden promised was he was going to reverse Trump's corporate tax cuts, uh, that he was going to really improve the economy. I would say that President Biden needs to focus on that. He has not been able to kind of reverse those tax uh, breaks that Trump gave. But if he does that, if he's able to do that in his infrastructure plan, a $2 trillion proposal, which he calls American Families Plan, then he would be able to roll back much of what Trump did by enacting tax increases um, on corporations. And that would help Biden fund this quite extensive infrastructure proposal. Coming up, I speak to Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri about how the U.S. is approaching relations with China and Russia. Do you think as some senior politicians in Britain seem to, that President Biden is woke. I, I can't comment on that. But what I know is that he's a fervent believer in the transatlantic uh, alliance, and, um, uh, and that's a great thing, and a believer in uh, a lot of the things that uh, we want to achieve together. And, you know, insofar as um, nothing wrong with being, being woke, if, uh, but I've, what I've can tell you is that uh, I think that it's it's very very important for uh, everybody uh, to and I'm, certainly I, I will put myself in the category of people who believe that uh, it's important to stick up for your uh, your history or your, your your traditions and uh, thing and your, uh, your your values and things you believe in. Well, that was our deputy political editor Sam Coates trying to find out more about Boris Johnson's relationship with President Biden. Uh, perhaps Leslie can shed a little more light on things. It's very clear that this administration has, has come in knowing that America's greatest challenge is to manage the China challenge and to do it in partnership with allies. That in itself is not new from what perhaps Donald Trump also recognized or, or even, even President Obama in his pivot to Asia. 
But I think that the, the Biden administration, um, both as individuals and as, a, and as a team, are so committed to liberal values, to democracy and human rights. They see this as, as really a very significant challenge in shaping the balance between democracies and uh, autocracies across the international system. Tell me how the approach then will or won't differ from the Trump administration. As you said, this attitude towards China goes back well, seven years and a couple of presidents. You know, particularly with the Trump administration, it was on the issue of trade and those tariffs that were were brought in and um, is the Biden administration likely to ease those or is does it endorse that way of putting pressure on China? It is about thinking directly uh, about a broader approach to China, not just focusing on trade, but focusing very much on technology, on market access and on human rights, as we've seen. Now, some of that was beginning to happen uh, as, as Secretary Pompeo in the, in the Trump administration, who had a much more ideological approach uh, to China than, than Donald Trump did, who was, you know, Donald Trump was very transactional in many ways. You know, the other thing that the Biden administration is doing in, in addition to taking a comprehensive approach is that it's really thinking very much about the Indo-Pacific. And so part of that is certainly about managing China. And part of it, as we saw from the meeting with the Quad, is about putting forward a positive agenda that's intended to be anchored in the region, in the Asia-Pacific region, in the Indo-Pacific, and is, is intended to demonstrate that the U.S., uh, together with its partners in the region, can actually put a positive step forward on questions of you know, an international vaccine strategy, a technology strategy, a climate strategy, uh, you know, and, and as you suggested, um, really the previous administration had narrowed that global competition down to a singular focus on, on international trade. And what about climate change? Again, the world needs China to sign up to these targets if any difference is going to be made at all. And I noticed that uh, President Biden's climate summit, that uh, Xi Jinping made all the right noises, but didn't match the United States when it came to making some ambitious targets and promises. Well, I mean, it's an extraordinary shift, isn't it? Now, as you suggest, you know, I mean, John Kerry, President Biden, the entire team is taking climate. It's making it a leading issue domestically uh, that will be more challenging because of the partisanship at home but nonetheless domestically and in its foreign policy so it has been very interesting to see how quickly uh, John Kerry mobilized and met with the Chinese held that summit and is really pushing the envelope I think on setting targets uh, and when it you know when it comes to China again I think that this is um, going to if we're lucky both partners, uh, competitors will push each other to do better. I think that there is a, the devil will be in the detail and in the delivery. This is clearly going to be the, the, the place to watch as in the weeks ahead. It should be said the Chinese government denies committing human rights abuses and they have agreed to step up cooperation on climate change. And what about Russia? I'm just thinking, does everything we've said about the administration's attitude to China, does that apply in a way, you know, broadly to Russia? It's just that Russia is a lesser economic power, but in a way because um, President Putin wants to 
let's say, put the strut back into, into Russia, it's, it's a bit more of a danger in some senses. You know, Americans see Russia as um, a troublemaker, a troublemaker at home, a troublemaker for democracy, a troublemaker on cyber security and attacks. It's not only about Ukraine and as you look east from Europe, um, traditional security threats. It's really Russia's ability to disrupt um, and to create disinformation, to to divide Americans, to politicize and polarize domestic debates. The failure of Donald Trump to do anything about this has created a really significant opening for President Biden to demonstrate his commitment to you know taking a very tough line on Russia. It becomes critical to working with Europeans and demonstrating America's commitment. But I think really at the end of the day, um, the United States would like to see Europe step up and play a very leading role on this. Again, it speaks to the political and the geopolitical reality, which is America is constrained. And to the extent that it can reduce its commitments and manage its commitments globally and set clear priorities, China's right up there at the top and Russia's clearly very significant, but it's certainly not in the same league. Russia have denied being involved in any cyber attacks, but the U.S. disagrees, implementing sanctions this year. President Biden told the press that the United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of escalation and conflict with Russia, and that he wants thoughtful dialogue and diplomatic process. And you mentioned their um, attitudes towards Europe. Well, Europe, the geographical entity, but of course, uh, Europe now with the EU and the UK separate. Now, as you know, obviously, uh, here in the UK, uh, we like to laud the so-called special relationship and noticing that President Biden's first trip to, to Europe will um, involve coming to British soil, English soil for the G7 uh, summit in a way. And I know it went for previous administrations. If you really want to get something done in in Europe, don't you call Berlin or, or maybe Paris? Well, I think the British have, you know, rightly, the British government uh, has been concerned about this. Um, it, you know, there's a structural change with the UK's departure from the European Union. The, the EU market is critical. It's vital uh, to the U.S., but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's not all about economics and, and Britain plays an absolutely critical role in transatlantic security through NATO. The signal that that the British government has sent to the U.S. through its the position it's taken in the integrated review, the global Britain, the commitment to sending an aircraft carrier to Asia, tilting to the Indo-Pacific, all of these things, regardless of the motivation, read as demonstrating that the U.K., matters, what the U.S. priorities are, that the U.K. looks like it's aligned with those largely. And I think that matters to the Biden administration. Uh, and so I think regardless what people say that, you know, it's all going to be about Germany in particular and the European Union in general, I think it's much more complicated. And at the end of the day, the U.S. and the U.K., share so many values and interests and obviously questions of intelligence sharing, defense, cooperation, security, collaboration across the world's greatest research universities. I, very difficult to imagine 
that relationship being diminished in the medium to long term. But I think in the short term, it's not obvious that Boris Johnson and, and, and Joe Biden have a tremendous amount in common. And there's certainly some, you know, recent less than terrific history. But again, that, you know, short term uh, downturns in the U.S.-U.K. relationship are hardly out of keeping with the last seven decades. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, your host, Dermot Murnahan. This episode was produced by Lauren Pinkney, our interviews producer, Tatiana Alderson, and our media researcher, Nelly Stefanova. If you like this, be sure to subscribe and have a listen to our Divided States podcast about all things USA. For more explainers, analysis and interviews, do go to our website and app. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. During his first address to Congress this week, President Joe Biden unveiled his American Families Plan. The plan proposes $1.8 trillion in federal investment in education, child care, and paid family leave, including $25 billion allotted to help provide more nutrition assistance for children. Joining me now with how this could impact our area is Colleen Rodriguez, who is the CEO of Jewish Family and Community Services. Colleen, thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Can you break down this new plan and what it proposes a little bit further for us? Well, I think what we've known all along, and then it became even more highlighted during the pandemic, is that we have children that are dependent on the food that they receive while they are in school. So what happens in the evening, on the weekends, for school breaks? During the pandemic, Congress passed dollars for EBT funding so children could have money allocated to their family to compensate for the food they were missing at school. But that is not a long-term plan. And so there are many families, low to middle income families right here in our own community that struggle with food insecurity. And these dollars would have a huge impact in supporting those families. What is the current state of child hunger here locally? It's, it's significant. We have certain areas of our city. For example, the 32209 area, area code, zip code, has Washington Carver Elementary. So we have the max block food pantry at Jewish Family and Community Services. We average about 7,000 people a year that we feed. And then during the pandemic, Washington Carver reached out to us. They have about 180 students, and they realized they were not eating when they were going home and over the weekends. So now while we, now we are serving them, we've opened up a satellite food pantry there, as well as one on the west side and doing some food delivery programs. This year, we're going to serve close to 20,000 individuals, and the majority of them are children. So the need is great, especially in certain pockets of Jacksonville. And if this plan is passed, how could it help those in our community who are in need? Exactly what we're talking about, making sure that kids, yes, they'll still be able to receive food at school, but when they go home, that their families are provide, able to provide them healthy meals, both at night, on the weekends. You have to think about spring break and Christmas break and summer break. We need to make sure our children are getting adequate nutrition, have access to food. How can people get involved with your organization in our own community if they do want to help? 
Sure. During the pandemic, things have changed. Usually we're saying we want volunteers to come and help distribute food. Right now, we've kicked off our Max Block Food Pantry Match Challenge. So the Max Block Foundation will match every dollar donated to our food pantry. So a financial gift would be helpful. If you wanted to do a food drive in your neighborhood or in your church, that is wonderful. We always accept food donations. And then we hopefully in the pan- when the pandemic is passed, we'll be able to use you as a volunteer to help stock shelves and to deliver food. Where is the best place for people to go to learn more and get more information? Please go to our website at jfcsjacks.org. It will tell you when our food pantry hours are open. If you're needing food, we're open Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, one to three. All are welcome. But our, our website is the best way to get information. Colleen Rodriguez, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone. Tonight, a fight for the future of the GOP breaking out in a special congressional election in Texas that's happening tomorrow. And of the 11 Republicans running, only one is campaigning on an anti-Trump message. Does he have any chance to win? Joni O'Sullivan is out front. President Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, I don't think he's going to go anywhere ever. The big lie uh, that President Trump has said since Election Day and January 6th, they, they really shook me. A battle for the soul of the Republican Party playing out in a special election in Texas. You're concerned about the direction of the party. Yeah. What do you mean? I think it's time for us to move past Donald Trump. Okay. I think that, uh, that was going to be my question. Where oh, are you good. Trump? Yeah. Uh, I didn't like the man, don't like the man, don't like Yeah, the I think a lot of people like us have been in a really hard position these past four years. Like, I felt like I had to vote for him in November just because the Democrats have gone so far to the left. There are almost a dozen Republicans running here to fill a House seat left by Congressman Ron Rice, who died after contracting COVID-19 in February. But Michael Wood stands alone being the only Republican candidate to run with an explicitly anti-Trump message. I felt like I had to stand up. Somebody needed to stand up and say, this isn't what the Republican Party should be, and we've got to go in a different direction. This is a district that has been largely Republican, but in recent years shown signs of turning blue. There are 10 Democrats running the race that's expected to go to a runoff with the top two finishers, regardless of party. You're talking to people, telling a lot of voters that the election wasn't stolen. You know, these sort of conspiracy theories like QAnon are all BS. What's the reaction been like on the ground when you're speaking to, to voters here? I've had people who were actually there on January 6th come up to me, you know, just shaking mad uh, that I'm saying the sort of things that I'm saying about that day and also about President Trump. But I do think that there's about 30 to 35 percent of the party that's open to this message, that wants somebody to stand up and say this message. So that's a, a small minority of the of the Republican Party. What is happening to your party? I don't know. And I'm really concerned about it. Three dirtiest jobs in the world. Professional wrestling, politician, and bull riding. Other Republicans here are firmly on the Trump train, like Dan Rodimer, a former wrestler. Michael Wood says, you know, what you're embracing here, MAGA, what Trump's all about is 
bad for the Republican Party, bad for the country. What do you say to that? I disagree with him. Um, I don't think he has any chance of winning, unfortunately. He's, he's a great guy, but uh, he's a veteran. But uh, I believe President Trump's agenda, uh, America First agenda, uh, was, was great with the route we were going. Trump endorsed Congressman Ron Wright's widow, Susan Wright, who is running to fill her late husband's seat, giving a late boost to her candidacy in a crowded field. Yet Wright hasn't fully leaned into MAGA in her campaigning, instead focusing more on her husband's legacy. And his priorities were uh, strong national defense, strong borders, uh, life and individual liberty. I voted for Susan Wright. Michael Wood, he's a Republican and he's voting, saying... Republicans need to forget about Trump. What do you think of that? Well, I don't think he's going to make a lot of headway. Uh, I just think uh, too much of the of uh, the party is uh, still very much ingrained with uh, Donald Trump's values. Michael Wood and Dan Rodimer represent two opposite poles of the Republican Party and a debate that will define the future of the GOP. Wood might have little hope of success here, but his campaign could help build a blueprint for anti-Trump Republicans in the 2022 midterms. And while I tend to vote Democrat, I thought, well, you know, because I'm not huge on a party. I'm huge on what they're standing for. So when you've got a Republican who is interested in, in changing the direction of the Republican Party is going in, I, I thought that was good. There's a Trump 2024 flag right over there behind one of the candidates. What, what goes through your mind when you see that? I, I, it almost feels like it's intentionally oppressive to somebody that looks like me. And you know, Aaron, it's quite telling when you hear what Michael Wood is saying. He's saying... The election wasn't rigged, that it wasn't, in fact, Antifa that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. He's telling the truth and the fact that that is controversial position to take in the Republican Party right now is very, very telling about how pervasive uh, conspiracy theories and the big lie is in the GOP. Aaron? Uh, incredible, as always. All right, Donny, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And on the back of Donny's report, I want to bring in Matthew Dow, longtime Texas Republican and chief strategist for the 2004 Bush-Cheney presidential campaign. So, Matthew, looking at this race, which, you know, again, just to emphasize something that, that Donny made at the, at the top of his piece, is happening uh, because a congressional representative died of COVID. One of the Republican candidates, only one, only one of 11, is running on an anti-Trump message. He's seen as a very long shot. Does that surprise you at all? No, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I know actually this area very well. I, back when I was had more hair and was much younger, I did a state rep race for a Democrat in uh, much of that area of the race. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Donald Trump still has 80, 85 percent popularity among Republicans. Um, he's somebody that still represents what the party is. This is where the voters are. As I've said before, Donald Trump's an effect of where the voters are, not a cause of where the voters are. The interesting thing about this race, which is why there's still some mystery, is there's so many candidates running on both sides of the aisle, north of 20 candidates on yeah. both from both sides of the aisle. And Texas has this unique situation, like many southern states, where you could get 17 percent of the vote and get in a runoff. Um, and that's likely that you, if you get, you know, 16, 17, 20 percent of the vote, you could be in a runoff. Is there enough? of a sort of anti-Trump in the Republican Party? Is there 15 or 20 percent of the vote among Republicans that are tired of Donald Trump and want to move into a different direction and believe that truth matters and integrity matters? There may be hmm. in that race. But that still doesn't mean that 80 or 85 percent of the party 
has completely bought wholesale right. into the big lie, bought wholesale into sort of all of Donald Trump's things he says and does. Um, they're completely part of that program. But I think the results will be interesting because there's so many candidates running. Right. Well, I think the math point you make is actually really significant. That even if the long shot does get, go to a runoff, um, don't read into that more than than you should. Uh, just looking at the you know the, the way the vote's going to be split up. So when you talk about the Republican Party, though, uh, Liz Cheney, Congresswoman, of course, is under fire again from members of her own party. And the latest uh, issue drawing ire is her fist pump with President Biden before his joint session to Congress. Cheney issued uh, this tweet in response uh, to those who are slamming her for that moment. Quote, I disagree strongly with Joe Biden policies, but when the president reaches out to greet me in the chamber of the House of U.S. Representatives, I will always respond in a civil, respectful and dignified way. We're different political parties. We're not sworn enemies. We're Americans. Do you think that Liz Cheney can remain in the current Republican Party, Matthew? Uh, no, I, I think she has no influence at all in the Republican Party today. She may have some some ideas that they buy into on on foreign policy, but even that, um, they're sort of moved past all of this sort of Cheney foreign policy, and they're on a whole different track on that. I don't think she can. Does she keep her position in the party and the leadership? She might because it's just easier to let that happen. But she has no no longer any influence in this party. The the people like Liz Cheney are less popular than people like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Republican Party today. And that tells you everything you need to know about the Republican Party today. And it's what's fascinating to me, and all of these things, Aaron, as you know, because you, you cover all of this stuff, the small story always tells a bigger narrative. And the small story is here is, unless you're willing to lie to Republican voters and not tell them the truth, you have no influence in the party and you're no longer part of the Republican Party. So basically, the table stakes for being a Republican in leadership or being a Republican of any influence at all nationally or even in states is you have to be willing to lie wow. to their base. And unless you're, if you're not willing to lie, you have no part of the base. It's incredible. Terrifying litmus test. Thank you very much, sure Matthew. Is. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. For this week's episode, add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.